Here's some formal analysis of Vine culture for you. One of the things that people forget about on Vine 
was the funniest shit in the world was to have a video that was like six minutes and three sec or six seconds. No, no, no. Like six and a half seconds is what I'm trying to say. So that the punchline yeah. gets like a little cut off. That was the funniest shit in the world back in on Vine is when yeah. like you were interrupted in the middle of the punchline. And where there was like ample time to deliver the punchline. Yeah. Yeah. Like I would be I would not be shocked if the one we just watched was like that that vine was actually a little short and they just decided, oh, I'm gonna make it like five and a half seconds so that I can like cut off the punchline midway through. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um Anyway, hi everybody. Welcome back to Ornate Stairwells, uh, a podcast about film aesthetics. I'm Autumn. I'm joined as always by Nia. The erotics of cinema. A thing you can't Google. Yeah. <laughs> for for anybody who's new here, just in case you don't know, um, right now we are in the middle of a big project of covering all of the works of David Lynch, plus all of Twin Peaks. One time I said that and somebody thought I meant like just the episodes of Twin Peaks he directed. No, we're doing all of Twin Peaks, yeah. even the parts he's not there for. So <clears throat> um, for segment one... We always talk about other movies that we've watched throughout the week, and that will be totally spoiler-free. Um, and then once we get into talking about Blue Velvet, and also a documentary we watched about the making of Blue Velvet uh, called No Frank and Lumberton, once segment two begins, all bets are off. There's like a reasonable chance I spoil the last episode of Twin Peaks The Return, you know? Yeah. Like, I was thinking about it while thinking about Blue Velvet. I don't know that it's going to happen, but I just want you, if you don't want spoilers, to be prepared for that. And as always, I would recommend going to audioentropy.com and subscribing to Totally Reprise has always been cool. Uh, they have been going through Twin Peaks week by week um, in a spoiler-free way. And so if you want the, like, experience of watching along with the podcast for the first time. I think Totally Reprise has been doing an excellent job of that. That's not what we are doing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we just have a different project. So. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anything else before we should just get into the movies we watched? Um, I don't think so. You watched The Keep. Yeah. Uh, so this is a, a Michael Mann film. Um, I saw some people talking about it on... So Criterion is doing, like, a bunch of horror movie features. There's... Basically, we have stuff from all of them, I think. I think so. There's the... They have an 80s movie one. That's what this. And I think the other... The movie that you'll yeah. talk about after is from... Um, there's a Vampires one, and there's a Universal Horror one. And we both watched movies from the Vampires one, and we both watched movies from the Universal one, so... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Just worked out good. Yeah. So, uh... The Keep, um, just extreme vibes at the beginning of this, this, uh, like it, it has like fantasy energy, but it's also like very specifically set during World War II. Mm. Um, like one of the core, like, uh, internal conflict, like the, the core conflict at the center of this is about like a Jewish man who is being called in to help identify what's going on with this like weird monster or whatever um and uh then having to like one him dealing with some of the guilt of like oh i'm helping out the nazis in this keep 
and then finding the the monster and the monster being like, join me, let me free, I can go like kill all the Nazis, and then him having to... Sounds like he should just let the monster go, IMO. The conclusion that the... Spoilers for the Keep. Okay. The conclusion that the Keep comes to is that actually the 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 demon in there is just feeding off of his impulse his like justified i want these people to stop and to like be dead okay that is like a understandable justifiable yeah desire for violence to then say uh i can then make you these promises that i'll go kill hitler uh-huh uh but really you d- it's actually kind of unknown whether or not the demon would fulfill this but there's like there's stuff that then the the Jewish man begins to believe about like if you are able to like if you are good and able to like help me in this way there are these things that you'd be able to do that you can't because of like your mm. internal demon rules or whatever. Also, I mean, you could you could make the argument that uh, this was a originally a like demon who seemed to be sealed away by Jewish people. Hmm. Okay. Um, based on just like him having all the information from being like a professor and studying old culture stuff, but, um, yeah, it's like I, I could. There's some interesting stuff when it starts having more plot, but also as somebody who's just extremely vibing with the beginning of the movie, I was a little disappointed that like I very clearly saw the monster the monster started like having conversations with the character and it became like about a plot and about themes, Mm. which is, is fine. Like it was still an interesting movie. Uh, but I also like my favorite part of the movie was just the beginning where it's just like people will be like in the weird catacombs of the keep, um, doing some, like something terrible. And then just like billowing fog smoke will just start pouring out of a like hole or something. And then they'll like, look and they'll see something and you don't see it. And then their eyes just start shooting light out and they're like, ah, and then they just die. And that's just good. That sounds good. That sounds good. Yeah. I have a pitch for you. And then there's a part where the, this, the, a monster is carrying this woman that it like rescues uh-huh. uh, back and you can kind of see the arms carrying, but like, it's like weird and like you're getting little glimpses of it, but there's still all this billowing smoke and fog all around. And I'm like, if this is all you see of the monster, that's fucking great. This is like weird. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then it all just fades away. And then it's just like a, a guy in a demon suit. <laughs> And I was a little let down by that. So, so I have a pitch to maybe improve this movie. Let me let me pitch you on this. Yeah. So, what if instead of like a big castle, it was like a mental health institution in Miami in the eighties? Are you about to start talking about your movie? And what if, like, <clears throat> what if you had like he was like a detective? who would like put the monster in this mental health institution, but then he had to go back and have conversations oh, with yeah. the monster. Oh, yeah. yeah. You're doing Manhunter. I'm doing Manhunter. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> um. What if, what if it's the eighties and just regular buildings are as scary as Gothic medieval castles? <laughs> So the thing about it, like, I guess that the original cut of this was really long and they made him cut it down and, and people have been like, this is such a weird enigmatic movie. That's like, I feel like I understood what this movie is. Uh huh. It just seemed very, 
at the beginning is like, oh, is there like, like you never see the monster. You never quite understand what's going on. I could see how that would be a weird thing that people, no, it's, this is a, this is a meditation on whether or not the, like you, your people are going through genocide and then you like wish genocide on the people who are doing it to you. Like it's a, a meditation on the like limits of that as uh-huh. a, a moral philosophy. Mm-hmm. And I still think that maybe the the world would be better. I I got to say <laughs> I think maybe we should kill the Nazis. Yeah. <laughs> I think this is But a I very... I don't think that this movie is saying the Nazis shouldn't die. It is fully You're right. knowing that the audience is going to be like the Nazis deserve to die as well. Um but it is saying that like letting that impulse uh run free especially with like something else that is other than you that's like not you couldn't really control this demon uh once you set it free um that like that that impulse to like see the people who are causing a bunch of harm to die is an impulse that like could lead to you becoming someone who's going to unleash like mm-hmm. violence that against people who don't deserve it okay which is something that i can like like it's like kind of half hard i can I I see it, how this is very like about World War II like models it a little bit in a uh-huh. way that um if it went like maybe a little more like mythical that it maybe could have avoided some of these problems. Yeah, like currently on Ghost Divers, we are watching through and recording Kino's journey. Uh-huh. Uh and I feel like there'd just be like a like there could be a Kino's journey story where they go to some land that like has this sort of backstory or whatever and then like everybody died and then be like oh this is also still like a a a thing that like i I would still want to like further dig into than what the this like cartoon is doing kino's journey still like operates in the space that's very um like parable or allegorical um, where sometimes I wish it was like digging a little bit more into realities of things when it's chill, like tackling topics right. like this. Um, but yeah, it specifically being like the Nazis, I understand what it's doing, but also there's, I don't know. Yeah. How were the stairs? Uh, I'm positive that there were some decent stairs in here, but I don't, this was the one that I watched the longest ago, so I don't super remember. So I think I'm just going to put question marks. Okay. I, I'm not, like, recalling, like, damn, those are some sick, like, medieval uh, castle stairs or something, um, which is a little bit, like, I, I know it's not an S in my heart, unless I just completely missed a scene. Right. But. Um, um, also, sorry, Le- everybody's favorite podcasting cat, Lem, is here just causing mischief, so. Um, he's, like, so we record in your closet. Mm-hmm. And he's like found like a little thing of like peanuts or something, and no, he's just like cat treats. Oh, okay. So he's found the cat treats, and he's just like pushing the the thing around. Like maybe I can open this without my thumbs. Here, do you want cat treats? I will give you some. I recently cleaned in my closet because I record in here all the time, and there's uh-huh. just like shit on the floor, um, like. Stuff that we were just storing that was, like, pushed into corners. Yeah. But still, as somebody who spends hours every week in here... Yeah. Um, I reached a point of, like, uh, I need this to... Yeah. 
Well, <clears throat> okay, now that I'm done yawning, I'll talk about my uh, my first movie on the list, Prince of Darkness, John Carpenter, 1987. Uh, can I tell you something about this 80s John Carpenter movie that may surprise you? Uh, is, is it a... Is it rule? Is it it cool? fucking rocks. Yeah? <laughs> so like a, a good, fun horror movie? Yeah. 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 <laughs> Hard to believe, but John Carpenter was just making a lot of really good, fun horror movies. Um, for people who are not familiar with Prince of Darkness, it is um, like Satan, uh, Lucifer, the fallen angel. Yeah. <laughs> well, so these, it's it's kind of an interesting, like science fictiony premise, and I mean that in the most like literal way possible. The cast is like this professor and then a bunch of like physics students, biology students, um, this person who like studies religion and ancient languages. Um, so the, I don't know where this takes place. It looks like Philadelphia to me for some reason, but I have no idea, but there's this like little rundown church operated by this forgotten sect of the Catholic Church called the Brotherhood of Sleep. Um, the, the priest throughout the movie is played by Donald Pleasance, just fucking killing it. Um, uh, the the Brotherhood of Sleep is the church that I started going to when I decided to stop going to church. <laughs> uh, and so Donald Pleasance runs this church and he's got this like... Basically, Satan is in a big test tube in the basement, and he, like, goes to the local university, and he shows this professor, who's, like, this physics professor who, like, comes at it from this, like, very, like, you see him giving a lecture, and he's not, like, all right, so you do these differential equations, and you, you know, you can model the the movement of the atom through the whatever, blah, blah, blah. He's more, like, physics is the study of life. And what is life? Life is chaos. And what is chaos? Chaos is like this. He's like philosophizing about what physics are more than like teaching you like the physics. mathematics. Right. Because yeah. <laughs> um, it's a movie and that's more entertaining to see. Well, and it's also, I, I don't know. I think that's like valuable work to be doing. Yeah. Um, I think more... Uh, people in the profession of science and the field of science could stand to think about what it is they're doing instead of just doing it without really. <laughs> yeah. I say this as a person with a STEM education and a, who knew a lot of people who were just like, well, science is good because it's science and didn't really ever think about like, what is science? Like, what is, why are we doing the things that we're doing? Yeah. Um, which leads to everybody I know who got a degree at the same time as me like working for the CIA now, you know. <laughs> mm. Um, so anyway, the so, I did good in math in high school and so the uh military came yeah. and asked me if I wanted to work on their nuclear sub. Right. And I just thought, "Oh, nuclear subs sound cool." And didn't really think about like who might be impacted by me working on this submarine? Yeah, that was my <laughs> other friend who got asked what and worked on the nuclear sub. And I was like, uh, I will be a poor, starving artist, please. And yeah. then I did that for a while. And I was like, maybe I should get into industrial supply. <laughs> <laughs> um, so 
Donald Pleasance meets up with this like philosophizing professor and he's like, listen, I've got Satan in my basement. Um, and basically what the Brotherhood of Sleep has done has kept the secret of this Satan basement for 2000 years, which implies that at some point Satan basement was moved from like the Vatican to Philadelphia. I don't know why. I don't know who would have decided let's move Satan basement, but whatever. <laughs> So the Catholic Church has looked after Satan Basement for 2,000 years, um, and <clears throat> um, this professor and a whole bunch of his students who are much less charming, the, the, the student part of this cast is not very good. I will just say that flat out. I don't like the student part of this cast. They don't work for me. Um, and so all these students are going and studying the Satan basement, but the professor and Donald Pleasance don't tell them what it is they're studying. And so, like, they have this, like, 2,000-year-old book that's, like, written partly in, like, like Latin and partly in Cyrillic and partly just numbers. And they're, like, going through this 2,000-year-old book and they're finding, like, these are mathematics that humans didn't discover until the 20th century. How could this be in this 2,000-year-old book? And so they started, like... An alien must have landed. That alien must have been this thing. It's it's all that stuff is like kind of interesting. At a certain point, it doesn't matter because the Satan tube launches a jet of pee at one of the women in the group, and she becomes evil, and she starts infecting other people with the evil Satan juice. Um, by like. One of them, she, like, tricks into, like, hey, come look at the Satan tube with me. And the Satan tube pees on that guy, too. Or, like, she infects another woman in the group, and then they, like, start making out with a guy, and that infects him with the Satan. Um, and it just sort of escalates, and, you know. Yeah. Um, it's a, you know, it's a John Carpenter movie where they're all, like, trapped in a central location, and evil is spreading outward. Yeah. Um, stop me if you've heard this one before. <laughs> yeah. I think we've all seen Christine. <laughs> Show it to me. <laughs> uh, so yeah, like, movie's very good. John Carpenter's, like, score for this movie, I think, really carries it. Because I think just, like, the vibes in this movie are really, like, what makes the movie work for me. Just the, yeah. like... Like, people staring at computer screens while John Carpenter music happens is good. Or, like, there's a really good bit of, like, it's this old, like, scanline 80s computer. And then this woman is just, like, translating from this book. And it just says, I am the Prince of Darkness, Beelzebub, Lucifer, the Destroyer. You know, just typing, like, Satan words over and over. It's really good. Yeah. Um, Vibes are great. Cast is not so great. Um, now, I you did mention the 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 Satan room is the basement. Yes. So how are the how are the stairs? The stairs are impeccable. Down to that basement. <laughs> the stairs down to that basement are mwah, so good. Yeah. Well, because if not... you if you were say a, a professor uh -huh. of physics, uh, and you had to grade grade these stairs. What letter grade would you give? So, like, I'm tempted to give an A+, right? But I'm going to be honest with you. I was really high while watching the movie. <laughs> and so 
I'm feeling an A right now, in part because it's like, I was not watching with the sort of careful eye where I feel like making the fine group distinctions between A, A plus, and S. Yeah. You know, if I were, um, yeah. Uh, two, two last quick little things I'll note about it. Um, one, the absolute worst part of this movie is like, because it's like an 80s horror movie, they do the like alien thing of like, race-blind casting, kind of, of just, like, we just cast actors in these roles, and, like, race doesn't really come into it, you know? Yeah. Um, Except for, like, a couple lines here and there. But it leads to, like, a really weird thing where there's, like, one black guy in the movie, and he's infected with the Satan because, like, the white girl and the Asian girl make out with him, and it's, like, a weird race and gender stuff happening there. And then he's, like... The only person who is affected, like, differently by the Satan juice, um, because the rest of them are mind-controlled, but he has, like, a little bit of, like, a sense of, like, ah, I am being controlled, and I'm going to try to resist this in a way that the rest don't. And it's, like, I don't think the movie is saying anything about race. It just, like, it felt like it introduced a racial component that it didn't fully, like, unpack or think about and i was like what is happening here (laughs) yeah you know yeah um i expect this to be true of most of the stuff in that 80s horror collection yes absolutely uh well like the specific thing you're saying as well as like also if you go on arrow and look at 80s stuff Uh uh-huh of a lot of 80s horror movies have fucking great vibes i love the vibes of 80s horror yes Anything that seems to be trying to say something is going to be, like, muddled at best, usually. Yeah. You know? I think this movie, the thing it's trying, the thing it's more engaged in is this, like, what is the role of science in in the late 20th century? What is the er role of religion in the late 20th century? And I don't think it's, like, capital S saying things about it. I just think it has, like, two characters that sort of, like, represent those things and they have cool conversations where they say things and you're like oh that's so deep and they're not actually saying anything like 80s 80s horror movies i could be wrong this trend could have started well before that but like i associate really with the 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 like beginning like the there's maybe early beginnings, but like it really becoming like a thing in mm-hmm. film criticism where people do psychoanalytic readings of horror movies about how, oh, this is about like fears. Here's the things that the movie seems to be intentionally about with fears of society. Now let's also do the psychoanalytic readings of like, and then because of the way that characters are cast race wise, that's also commenting on something that yeah. it doesn't realize it's talking about or like it's commenting on gender in a way that doesn't think it's doing. And there's like a and, layer there yeah. to this that. I can't quite parse. Yeah. You know? Uh, and I think, like, sometimes people make those readings and it is interesting and sometimes they make those readings and I'm just like, this is why I don't vibe that much with psychoanalytics. Right. But I also fully understand why 80s horror movies, which are so much about vibes uh-huh. and have, like, such... are trying to say political things but also not, like, fully thought out all the time and things, really invite... Uh, like psychoanalytic reading of this so you're like this person is providing for us the dream of a movie like a movie and a dream (laughs) yes (laughs) not to jump the gun (laughs) and i'm going to because i'm a psycho uh like analytic critic Uh i am going to approach all movies as 
as like dreams that you are going to psychoanalyze. Right. Uh, but instead of it being the dream of a single person, it is the dream of society that we are we are mm-hmm. reading, and that's like where this whole like doing this type of reading of eighties movies, I think, really comes from is eighty like yeah. specifically these eighties movies. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the- and I under I understand why, even if I'm more just like, no, the vibes are just fun and it's kind of dumb. Like, <laughs> like if Prince of Darkness came out today. There would be many think pieces about it that I would like read and be like, I see how you got here, but I think you're just wrong, you yeah. know. But it, like, there would definitely it it is the it is a movie that would now get tagged, I think, as elevated horror, and I think we are very skeptical of that phrase for obvious reasons. Um, but I think like it would be it would be an object of discourse now, yeah. You know, I think for me the the most to which I like understand the genre of elevated horror is just that people started doing this with like horror movies in the eighties and nineties, mm. and then directors were reading those pieces and then making movies, yes. and so movies are now being made with the understanding that this is a critical lens applied to movies in the yes. way that like Prince of Darkness is not being made with the awareness that people are going to do a psychoanalytic reading in the yes. same. Same way. But like but like Jordan Peele is very explicitly said like he he's trying to make John Carpenter movies. Yes. And he's a guy who absolutely understands if I put if I put like Daniel Kaluuya like escaping from this confines in the movie by picking cotton, there will be like think pieces about that. You know, just pick to grab a specific example from Get Out. Like like Jordan Peele understands that people will apply this reading. And so he's going to give them like the ground to do that. Whereas like John Carpenter just kind of stumbles into it. Yeah. And I'm not saying one of these things is better than the other. I'm a huge fan of Jordan Peele movies. Yeah. If I, if I was trying to make 80s style horror movies today, I would also be, I think more conscious of the imagery that I am using and the way that I don't know if John Carpenter always is. Right. Because I now know the way that people will read those images. Yeah. And so I want to like be able to control the way that my work is being read. Like even just as like a a personal self-preservation, like I want to make sure people aren't reading like weird shit in my movie that That I'm going to get canceled for. Yeah. Whatever. (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, oh, oh, um, one last thing I should note, content warning wise, obviously it's an 80s horror movie. There's a lot of like bad shit. Um, the thing that I felt like take all the usual content warnings you would take an 80s horror movie with, like just thinking to yourself, what have, what are things I have seen in an 80s horror movie and just go with that. You should also know there are a lot of really gross scenes of bugs, like thousands of bugs creeping and crawling. Yeah. You know, that was a thing that like Nora was uncomfortable with and, you know, it didn't like make her stop watching the movie, but she definitely Nora does not like bugs and so that like there's a really sick scene of like a guy standing outside the church and he's been possessed by the Satan and he's like just got like thousands of beetles crawling on him and I think yeah. it's sick, but Nora was like I got to look away from the screen for a minute. <laughs> anyway, your movie. Um 
Yeah, so moving on to the Vampire Collection. I watched two movies from the Vampire Collection. One of these they also put in the Universal Horror Collection. Yeah. You probably know what I mean already, but we'll get to it. I'm going to talk about the (laughs) other one first because we're going to have more Universal Horror to get to. But um, So I watched The Velvet Vampire. Mm -hmm. Uh, This was directed by Stephanie Rothman. Um, And part of this is like... Of all these collections, there are some 80s horror movies, more 80s horror movies, and I'll watch just for the vibes. But this is the one where I'm the, the most inclined to try to watch through a bunch of these. I, I kind of skipped some of these early. Like, I've seen Vampire, um, and you're going to talk about Isle of the Dead, so I might loop back around to it if I have time. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I started with The Velvet Vampire. I'm just going to kind of move through. I've seen Blackula before. I've seen Nosferatu the Vampire. So, like, some of these I've seen. Wa- I watch Nosferatu the Vampire, like, once a year. I might yeah. Just... <laughs> um, I, I'm debating on whether... It's been a long time since I've seen Blackula, so I think I'll rewatch it. Um, I'm... It's also been a while since I've seen Vampire's Kiss. Believe it or not, I've seen a number of movies on here. <laughs> but I, th- I think I'm going to try and watch as many of them as I can. But, again, there might be some where I'm like, eh... I've seen the Let the Right one in recently from, you know, I'll prioritize some over others. And have then... you seen A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night? I don't know if I have. That's a stairwell's yeah. ass movie. That is yeah. an intensely stairwell's movie. Not I enough f- vampire shit, I felt, but yeah, very, very good movie despite not being enough vampires. Um, yeah, so then the, the one that I watched was, um, I was like, oh no, don't autoplay, don't autoplay. Okay. Um, the Velvet Vampire. So this is 1971. There's like a big jump that happens in this because I feel like it's in roughly chronological order. Uh, mm-hmm. Order where you get like universal horror kind of stuff and like some other stuff around Silent that time, films. and then it just jumps to the 70s. Yeah, but I think that kind of makes sense for like doing vampire stuff. Yeah, especially There's some if- other stuff in there, but. Like all the a lot of the hammer stuff is like more in the arrow direction and maybe is even on arrow right now. So if yeah. you can't get the hammer stuff, like you just have to kind of p- skip past the fifties and sixties. Yeah. Uh but anyway, I wanted to pull this up because um I wanted to get the exact uh thing that they said here, which is that the Velvet Vampire, uh so it's a follow up to to one of our hit films and it uh, deconstructs vampire mythology with a subversive feminist spirit and dreamily poetic visual style. I will give it the dreamily poetic visual style. This is also feminist, but it's just very second wave feminism. Mm. Um, where like I was trying to read other stuff where people were talking about like what makes this movie feminist. Like I was like, I didn't like save any articles, but I was just kind of like quickly looking through, and some of it is like, oh. Like the the main vampire who's this like two hundred year old seductress is like powerful and like you know uh, having control over the man and stuff and I'm like oh yeah okay the the feminism that's like what what f- what women need to do is to like seize power <laughs> right um, which is just like a such a different understanding of it than I think. Like we, I, I sometimes feel bad because I've ragged on like two feminist films mm. and then the, the other one was, I think like very like early I, third wave. I think as two transgender women, we are allowed to l- look askance at 20th century feminism from time to time. Yes. I think, I think that's within <laughs> we're, our rights. We're allowed to look askance <laughs> at it before it like developed an understanding that 
uh, was not just about like, like this movie is so about like whenever explicitly feminist stuff comes up it is about like, Oh, like the, the seductress woman talking. So the basic plot of this is that there's this, uh, vampire who, uh, seduces a, a like yuppie couple to go to her like desert retreat. It is kind of exciting to have a vampire movie that mostly takes place in like blinding desert. Like they Mm. just, they just like threw the, the whole like sun out the window part of vampires. (laughs) Um, I think. Because I don't think you ever see her outside. Maybe maybe it's she's always inside. I don't know. I wasn't paying that close attention to that part of the vampire mythos. Right. But um, yeah, it's like this secluded desert, like, mm-hmm. you know, big fancy house. Um, and throughout it, she basically like is seducing both of them uh in a, a weird way that also makes sense for something that's like very second wave feminism uh it's like strangely the like doing the um free love thing but in a way that because this is a horror movie ends up coming off as cautionary of like oh a couple sleeping around with another woman that's gonna go bad Uh oh yeah um so yeah, it's it's that thing of like sometimes there's just the early feminist pieces that feel weirdly regressive from yeah. my perspective as yeah. someone living in 2022 who's a trans woman. But, right. Um, but yeah, I mean it was still fun. Um, but yeah, so what I was saying is, uh, as part of that, part of the seduction is like I'm, it eventually culminates with her killing the husband, the the uh, vampire killing the husband. Um, but there's like parts earlier on where she's like in the process of seducing the the uh, woman and doing a lot of it is like, oh, you know, men, they they like envy us because they can't have the the like feminine orgasms that we have, um, which is because they have penises. I'm doing blinking white guy dot gif. Yeah, <laughs> which I'll just I'll I'll say this: uh, if if you just listen to enough trans women talk about their sex lives, there are trans women who do have like female quote unquote orgasms. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Whatever the, that means. Yes. <laughs> um. Yeah, it, it's just like it's all this like it, it is specifically about like gender and sex are still one concept. And so it is like talking about like feminism, but from this thing that's like very much about like sex Mm -hmm. and like genitals Mm -hmm. as like a, a site for like difference and oppression. Right. In a way that to me, I just watched and I'm like, uh, (laughs) this is kind of (laughs) stupid. How was the movie Um, though? The other thing is, so uh, I think this also describes like it blending um, like art film and then like exploitation cinema. That sounds kind of interesting. And so some of that stuff is interesting. Like uh, some of the visuals, the way that they will like, like there are these recurring, this is dreaming, uh, there's this recurring dream sequence Mm -hmm. of like basically them uh having sex in a bed that's just in the middle of the desert. Mm-hmm. Um and that's like and like 
stuff develops through it. And then like the couple, both of them are having the same dream, which is weird. Um, but like it develops. Oh, the other thing that's feminist about it is at the very end, she survives and is talking about what happens and nobody believes her. Oh, that is feminist. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, they're just writing off like everything that she's saying is like, Oh, I don't know. That part sounds kind of interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I was dismissive, but that it, that does sound interesting. That's it's like definitely good... better than the uh, men and women have different genitals, and so uh, men oppress us because they envy our genitals. Uh huh. Part of the movie, and the orgasms that we can have with our with our vaginas. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so the the thing about and this makes sense for both the exploitation cinema and the art cinema. Um, but, like, the way that those blend into, like, an aesthetic thing, I enjoyed a lot. Yeah. The way that it blends into acting, I don't know what it is. There's something about, like, I can fully tolerate bad acting if I'm just watching, like, a a, a bad, like, Skinamax exploitation movie or whatever. Uh-huh. You know? Whenever I have my Skinamax segments on these. Yeah. Where I watch one of those movies. Um I can like fully tolerate the bad acting in there and I can sometimes tolerate it in like arty movies, mm-hmm. but the way that it is intersecting here for some reason, I just like couldn't get it because everything is 80 yard uh-huh. as well. And so there are these things. I think some of it is that it almost felt like the acting in the moment was like better, but the 80 yard voiceover sounds like the English dub for Diatron five sometimes <laughs> in terms of just like, they're reading lines and they're not really like, they don't seem in, like there are sex scenes and they don't seem into whatever is happening because they're doing an ADR line uh-huh. in the way that like something that is intentionally going to be a porno wants to like try to maintain some of that. And so I think is more often going to have Mike's on set yeah. or something. You want like a sort of like verisimilitude there. Yes. You know? And you like, you lose it. And it just, it, it was just weird. Like yeah. the, the acting was bad and it took me out of this in a way that it won't other stuff. And I yeah. don't know why, but. Hmm. Um, Cause yeah, we, we sing the praises of all sorts of like 80 yard movies, but it sounds like maybe this yeah. just like didn't. Like <clears throat> something was, there was some disconnect happening and the disconnect wasn't like, it would have been better without the disconnect. And yeah. sometimes I will watch like a Skinamax movie and the weird disconnect between this is supposed to be horny and then like the bad acting or whatever uh-huh. is part of the charm to me. And I don't know why, I don't entirely know like what was different this time where it didn't work, but it just, there are parts where it's just like, God, just like find better actors or something. Yeah. Get a better person to voice over. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I don't know. Um, it's still fun. I, if people are are really into vampire movies, watch it. Uh, if you're not super into vampire movies, there's probably better ones to to watch than this. Like, go watch The Hunger if you haven't seen The Hunger. That, that movie fucking bangs. That movie bangs. <laughs> oh, the other thing. This is my other big complaint as someone who loves horny vampire movies. Um, there's like no blood in this movie. Weird. There's a part where the vampire lady like cuts like a X or like a cross on the the breast of the woman, and there's it's there's no blood like you kind of get like the suggestion of she's doing it, and then it's like they've done like the the makeup where you get like kind of the ridges of like it's cut open, uh-huh. but with no blood. Weird. 
And I'm like, you're doing a vampire movie. <laughs> there was the part early on where she was like, oh, she, you know, commenting something like bloodstone and like the blood in the veins being life. And here it is like frozen or whatever. And I'm like, okay, you're talking about blood and this is good, you know? And then the, whenever there's an opportunity to show blood, they just didn't really. Hmm. Um, I get it. It can be a, a, it's not that hard to put some food coloring in some like corn right. syrup. Right. It's not going to be the best blood, you know? But, like, but it's like it's 1971. It. People know how to like put yeah. gratuitous amounts of blood in movies. Yeah. It's 1971. There's no one stopping you from doing that. <laughs> and like this is what I want from a vampire movie. This is literally like the 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 audience of people who is going to see this movie in 1971 is people who are going to like midnight movies to see the raunchiest, goriest shit they can find. Yeah. Give us the gore. And the the whole appeal, if you're watching movies from like the 70s with vampires, is that you're going to get some blood when you also get the tits. Yeah. It's easy. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Tell me about Dracula. Uh, oh, another... how are the stairs? How are the oh, stairs? Oh, the stairs. Um, I feel like there were some in the the estate, but I don't really remember them that well. I'm going to do question marks again. Okay. Um, you know what movie has some good fucking stares? Huh. This is Dracula, 1931. Fuck yeah, it does. Um, God, there's some fucking incredible stares at the end. So this is a movie uh, that is not blood horny. But yeah. I understand why. It's a universal the... horror movie from 1931. Yeah. This yeah. is pre-code, but still, like, there's just, you know. Yeah. Uh, it's also funny because we'll we'll talk later about another one of these movies. Uh, both of them have a woman where there's some sort of mark on her neck, and they don't want to do the effects to to do that. And so, like, someone will like lean over, like facing away from the camera, and be like, "Oh, how long have you had these like, you know, two marks on your neck?" Uh huh. They're not gonna show you the vampire bite. No. They don't want to. They don't want to do the work to make it. No. But they're going to have it conveniently faced away from the camera while someone looks at it and comments on it. You're right. Anyway. Um, it's still this. It's still a little bit hot when, like, Dracula goes in to, to bite her. <laughs> like, for, for a movie from 1931 yeah. uh, that is seemingly, like, already trying to live up to Hays Code stuff in a lot of what it's doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even though that doesn't exist yet. <laughs> I don't know if this would necessarily have passed because maybe there's some other stuff that would be... Yeah. Mm, but, yeah. Um, It's not horny in the same way that some vampire movies are. Right. But it's still a little bit hot. Yeah. Bela Lugosi's not like a bad looking dude. You know what I heard about him? What? I heard he's dead. That's not what I heard. <laughs> there seems to be some... <laughs> Some debate around this, because I heard he's undead. Undead? Undead. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, this, like, the thing about universal horror movies is I watch them, I'm like, hell yeah, and then I go on Letterboxd and I, like, rate basically all of them three stars. Yeah. (laughs) Like, I'm just gonna, like, forget, this is far from my favorite adaptation of Dracula. Yeah. Um, 
it just mixes up so much stuff because it's not really interested in like actually adapting Dracula um, in the way that like Francis Ford Coppola's is right. like more intentionally trying to adapt what that book is. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously like still making choices about what to omit and light over and stuff. But uh, this is just like literally the person who comes and visits Dracula is not um, is John, John, Jonathan Harker. Harker. Harker, yeah. yeah. I, I briefly forgot, because I think they changed the name slightly in the Icelandic version, which is what I've read more recently. Uh. Um, but anyway, uh, it is Renfield. You just see like how huh. Renfield comes to be. Interesting. And, I forgot. Like, I've, I've seen this movie, but it's been a while. Makes him into his, his uh, weird bug-eating hmm. servant. I've seen this movie, but it's been a while, so I totally yeah. forgot that it's about Renfield. Yeah. There was a part where I was like, oh, like... Not like, you know, watching it while I'm at work, not like super. And then I was like, wait a minute. Did they just call him Renfield? Is that, is Renfield here? And I'm just mixing up like the actors look similar. And then I was like, no. What? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's also weird because uh, Harker does come up later with all the stuff around um, the woman. Mm-hmm. Which I don't even know if they've changed her name or not. I'm forgetting what she's called. She's the I get this mixed up a lot because the the Herzog Nosferatu folds like Mina Harker and um, I think it the, is Mina in this. The, there's the other woman who get like yeah, like the Herzog Nosferatu just makes those two women one woman basically. I feel like they do the same here too, where you just have yeah Helen Chandler as Mina, but I think she like does get bit and stuff. Yeah, oh, no, cause... Lucy's in here, too. Oh, Lucy, yes. There we go. I was like, <clears throat> Lucille? No, it's not Lucille. What is it? Um, <clears throat> But, yeah. I mean, it's fun. The, the shot... The thing that I always kind of forget when I watch uh, this movie again is... Because you so often see, like, especially the first shot where he, like, kind of lunges forward and the, the light is on his eyes, mm-hmm. you know? A recurring image with Dracula in these movies is they will shine light, like specifically yeah. reflected over his eyes, so they're like glowing. Right. Um. And there's like that first shot where he kind of lunges forward, and I've just seen so many edits of like someone's doing a thing about horror movies, and you'll have music playing in the background, and they're editing together multiple movies, and they play that. Mm. And so seeing it uh, once again, uh, and the last time I watched this was probably like when I was in undergrad, um. Where he lunges forward and the lights on his eyes and it's just silent. Mm-hmm. It's so weird. And it's not, this isn't a silent movie, but there's so little music in it in a way that like, whenever I think of it, I think of the, the kind of like old score that you would associate with people cutting together. Yeah. Like, a, we're doing a horror night. Here's a bunch of like old horror movies. Cause it's campy and fun to do that or whatever. Yeah. Uh, even if they're not showing old horror movies, they still might do that as the little yeah. intro to their horror night or whatever. Like a, a thing on campus or right. uh, you know little trailer playing before something playing at like the music box or whatever it's gonna have like that organ music <sighs> it's just not here and I just in my memory of Dracula there's like more of a score than actually exists in this movie right and so there's so many scenes that when I remembered and when I would think about them I would think about like just some sort of generic organy music or something happening well cause that's what's happening and it's just quiet that's what's happening in the like 
earlier Universal monster movie, Phantom of the Opera, which is like an actual silent film. Yes. And so there's like a, a score like continuously playing over the whole thing. Yeah. In a way that like 30s Dracula is just fucking quiet. Yeah. And part of me was like, is there just something about film technology at this point where they're not putting a lot of music on it? Yeah, I wonder. Or is this early enough that there still probably is a an organist or something yeah. at most theaters and they're just having that guy do something when yeah. people aren't talking? Right. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. But it was like it it felt so absent that like there were moments where I was like, man, I wonder if like I I bet has the music box ever done 31 Dracula that has like the, they bring in their organist because the music box has has an organist who will often play before like big screenings and also whenever they do silent films does the music. I um, bet I bet in 1931 that was like a thing. Yeah, was was there were people just playing music to accompany this movie and like we watched another Universal horror movie from like four years later or something and I feel like that had a little bit more of yeah. like a soundtrack. Yeah, yeah. So I wonder mm-hmm. if there's something was happening there, but it struck me it was like. The one of the big things I just like focused in on with this is like how quiet of a movie it was. But um, <sighs> otherwise, I'm like, starting with Dracula, I assume people have either seen it or they have cultural understanding of it. If they haven't seen it, it's on Criterion. Go watch it. I'm sure you can find it other places. Yeah, it's, and then watch it's Spanish... a movie from 1931. And then watch Spanish Dracula. Yeah. I probably won't watch that one while I'm at work because I don't Sp- speak Spanish, Spanish. <laughs> but maybe if I have some time some night, I will put it on. Um, I guess if people don't know Spanish Dracula, um, during the day, they were shooting like this movie, and then at night, they shot this movie, but in Spanish. And it's weirdly way better for like reasons that are hard for me to pin down because I have only... Like, I saw 31 Dracula, and then, like, five years later, I saw Spanish Dracula, so I don't really know what makes Spanish Dracula way better, but it is way better. Trust me on this. Um, Yeah, this was in that period, too, where... Because one of the the great things for early cinema about silent film is you could just do the interstitials in whatever language you wanted. Uh Uh-huh. And eventually, like... Dubbing becomes a thing. A lot of stuff that is ADR'd is specifically produced where you can easily do multiple dubs mm-hmm. of it, and all of them are dubs, you know? Uh, and that, like, comes around on solving the same problem of, like, how do I make a low-budget movie that's not necess- necessarily going to have a huge, like, audience in the home country and I want to be able to show it other places? Um, but, yeah, and this is just... At this period when they were doing Dracula, the solution was, well, we'll just have two casts. We'll have a English-speaking cast and we'll have a Spanish cast. And we'll, right. we'll shoot both on the set. And Yeah. You might not want to eat that one. That one I found on the ground and it was really old when I was cleaning. So that one might also be similar. We'll see. I, I mean, want... you can open it up. You my, can see. My throat's a little sore, so I was like, oh, Ricola, don't mind if I do. But yeah, that I'm not touching that one. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not touching that one either. Yeah, both of these are old. I I don't I don't. I found need these one. like down in here. I do not need one right now. Anyway, um, my next movie is oh stairs. Let me just quick do the stairs. Fucking s. Yeah, they're the stairs from Dracula. You know they're, the stairs. Yeah, there are like multiple six stairs. 
Uh, but there's one where they built like a giant staircase. It's just like it kind of starts in like the lower right corner and like it goes up to the upper left corner and it has kind of this curve to it. Um, and like multiple people do things on it. At the very end of the movie, John and and Mina are getting like married and go up for some reason. I don't know why they're in Castle Dracula getting married. <laughs> well, it's not because this comes up like later. I don't even think it's Castle Dracula. I don't know. Oh, it's it's the I think it's the place that he buys when he comes to London or whatever. Oh, okay. Um, and they're like, oh, that's like kind of in ruins. Are you going to fix it up? And he's like, oh no, I like the ruins. <laughs> um, anyway, fucking ass. They're incredible stairs. Oh, you gave this S to Velvet Vampire in the sheet. No, I didn't. Oh yeah. I, I, okay. It, mine, it's just at an angle from where you're viewing. So yeah. Sure. Anyway, uh, continuing on with Universal Monsters. This actually is not a Universal movie. This is an oh. RKO movie. It was under the Vampires collection, or at least to my recollection it was. Maybe yeah, I'm misremembering. I thought maybe it was another one that was like dual. No, it is It is an RKO picture from 1945. Okay. It is Isle of the Dead. Um, <clears throat> I just assumed Universal because... Because Boris Karloff is the star. Yeah. Um. So this movie, kind of interesting. Um. Kind of disappointing, but also really good, but also disappointing, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, Frankly, I picked it because, like so many of these like you, older horror movies, it's like an hour, fifteen minutes, and I like Nora got off work at twelve, and it was like ten thirty when I started watching a movie, so I was like, okay, well, I'll just watch a short movie. <laughs> um, so Boris Karloff is like this. Um, it's taking place in like like the Balkan War of the early twentieth century so like 1912 and so i think boris karloff is like an english officer who is like colonizing greece basically is what's happening here but yeah. i'm not familiar enough with the history to like really say for certain if that's true it's like one of those movies that like when this movie came out the balkan war was like only 30 years prior so you could just sort of assume that people in the audience knew what that was and didn't have to explain it <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> um so he's like this very stern officer the movie opens on like four of his men retreated and he has them all killed for retreating you know yeah um but he does he doesn't have them killed he like lectures one of them and then he hands that guy the gun and the guy kills himself that's how stern of an officer boris, Kar mm. boris karlov is yeah um but they're coming, it, like, he's been at war for a long time. He's a grizzled old soldier because it's 1945 and he looks very gaunt now. <laughs> um, 1945 outside of the film. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Um, and there's this journalist who's here uh, covering, like, Boris Karloff's, like, life as a soldier. Um, and they're coming home to England, basically. And they, like, stop in this, like, very nice chateau. Um before like they're stopping there for the night and they're going to hop on a boat the next morning basically and that night um like they start to suspect that there's like a disease that is spreading around the the chateau and so boris karloff is like well like, we have to quarantine and so it's like really fun like there's the grizzled old soldier and there's the journalist and there's the doctor and there's the like rich lady and there's the maid and they're all like quarantined um and there's a there's like one lady who's just like a witch 
Um, yeah, as you do. And there's so they're hanging around, and the doctor is like, "Oh, it's this, you know, disease that's doing this," and I'm like trying to cure what's happening, um, <clears throat> and, or, or um, there's the witch who's like, "It's not, it's not a disease. It's the vorvalica, which is like basically this like." Um, it is like a, it is like taking the vampire myth and making it more of a like localized folklore thing, the Vorvalica. Yeah. Um, and like, there's the guy from, uh, the third man as well as one of the people in this movie, not, not Orson Welles and not, um, Joseph Cotton, but like the guy with the little, the, the gay guy with the little yeah. dog, he's just hanging out being gay not in this the, movie. Not the doctor who is his partner, but the. Yeah. He's yeah. just hanging out in this movie being gay, um, and he dies pretty early on, but he was, like, one of my favorite parts of the movie. Um, and then, like, the movie, like, has this really cool premise of, like, oh, this kooky cast of characters is, like, all trapped, and there might be a vampire in their midst. And then it's, like, kind of disappointing, because it's, like, a movie from 1945, and so, like... The American cultural apparatus must assert, like, science and rationality over this, like, folk horror, basically. Like, oh, the witch has to be wrong because we are, like, a a society of scientific, rationally thinking people. And I was like, I was sold a fucking vampire movie. I want there to be a vampire. Yeah. But basically, the one rich lady has these fainting spells that can sometimes last for days, right? Um, And so she faints one night, and they're like, Boris Karloff thinks she's a vampire, the doctor thinks she's dead, and so they both of them can agree, well, let's bury her then. (laughs) Um, And she she wakes up, and this is like her greatest fear, is um, her, she mentions early in the movie, like her greatest fear is that she's going to have one of her uh, fainting spells and get buried alive, and lo, it happens. Um, Chekhov's getting buried alive, <laughs> um, and she like gets up out of the coffin, and they like dressed her in all these like flowy white robes, and so she's not a vampire, but she is like so freaked out from having her worst fear come true that she's just running around the chateau killing people at a certain point in her like flowing white robes and her like dark hair. Um, and so she's not a vampire, but you get like a little bit of vampire stuff. And this whole sequence is like, like the whole movie has been very talky in like a stage play type of way. But this sequence gets very like cinematic and like we get lots of close ups and eerie shots where you think you see her or maybe you just see like the like the little wisp of her robe as she's like leaving the frame. Um, and like, you know, the, the one girl who she's targeting is like in this like soft focus and doesn't know. It, it's very like cool. It's just you get like a cool vampire sequence. And then because all the basically everyone has to die at the end of the movie. So then she just throws herself off a cliff because she's so scared after being buried alive. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was like a little disappointing because I wanted it to be more of a vampire movie, honestly. But for not being a vampire movie, it did deliver a really cool sequence of the vampire wreaking havoc murdering murdering a lot of people lots of people die <laughs> yeah <laughs> and yeah it's like an hour 15 so it's like yeah it wasn't the greatest movie ever but what did I lose an hour of my life whatever <laughs> yeah it's the beauty of movies 
Except now when they're like two and a half hours. Yeah, exactly. Um, stairs. Um, surprisingly good stairs in this movie because basically you enter the chateau and there's like the main set where the men talk and have serious conversations about the quarantine and this and that. And then there's like this really nice set of stairs that leads up to like the room where like the the main woman and her maid like sleep. And so you get like cool shots of those stairs because I think they actually built like a two story set basically. And so you can actually like see those things connect or you can see like there's the door to the bedroom and Boris Karloff is standing on the stairs, banging on the door, but they won't let him in. And it, it's, it's good. Also, that was the other thing was I was very disappointed that um, Boris Karloff is never a vampire in this movie. At one point he like gets the disease and he thinks he was bitten by the vampire, but he gets the disease and he like kind of goes sicko mode a little bit. But, but he's like, never it's like not what you want. It, yeah, he's never a vampire. He's just kind of like a. He just kind of becomes more of a weirdo. Yeah. So, I I would give this one like an A plus for stairs. Okay. You, we built a really nice set of stairs. We featured them prominently, and we used them. Yeah. You know, it didn't quite hit that next tier, that like that upper echelon. But like, you really you did the thing I asked you to do as best as you could do it. Yeah. The Raven. The Raven. Um, we put this on. So I was I was just over here because we usually hang out on Fridays and we yeah. just wanted to keep doing that. But I was working at five in the morning on Saturday, so we didn't want to like watch Blue Velvet that night. <laughs> yeah. It was also a thing of like we were unsure for a little while if we were going to have time this weekend to watch Blue Velvet and record. Yeah. Or not. Um, and so I think as part of that too, it was like, well, if we have to, we can watch Blue Valley, but we, we really, you have to work at five. We don't yeah. really want to do that. Yeah. So I was over here, we were just hanging out and we're like, oh, we figured out a plan for watching Blue Velvet on Saturday. Let's just put on something that's short. Ah, oh, The Raven is an hour and one minute. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's got Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi. My, you're spoiling me. <laughs> um... And this is just such a like this this is kind of peak universal horror to me. Yeah. In that even the title card says like suggested by Edgar Allan Poe's poems. And would you like to guess, dear listener, how much it has to do with Edgar Allan Poe's poems? Jack Diddley shit. <laughs> I mean, we get it. So basically the premise of it is Bella Lugosi plays a a doctor yeah. who is just uh, Edgar Allan Poe brained in the way that honestly even overtakes me being Nana brained. But yeah. it's, it, it, it's like if I was Nana brained uh, in a way where I was now doing like evil deeds to others because I like Nana so much. No, no, no. It's if you were so Nana brained that you were like, let me like meet a girl on the train and move into an apartment with her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like that's that yeah. is like the thing. Except he's really into Poe, and so he's like, I built a pit and a pendulum in my basement. <laughs> yes. Uh, and so it's called The Raven, but, like, you get a part at the very beginning where he's, like, reading the Raven poem. And he has and, a giant fuck-off raven on his desk. Yeah, on his desk. Uh, and it is uh, 
what is the exact line that he had? Because he talks about how he identifies <laughs> with, the ra- with the raven. So and they're like, says, isn't it a, a like symbol of death? Or and whatever? he says, death is my talisman. Yeah, death is my talisman. And I'm like, yeah! <laughs> That's my guy right there. Um, fucking rules when he says that. Death it's is so my stupid. talisman. I love it. <laughs> um, but yeah, so he, he identifies with the raven because the raven represents death and death is his talisman um but honestly it's more adapting the pit and the pendulum yeah if anything yeah because it's more about like a man who wants to torture yes um but anyway for some reason he can't be the one who who pulls the he's like i'm a respected doctor i can't do the crimes i need an accomplice yes even though I'm doing the crime, I built yes. everything. I'm and I'm going to do a different crime to to get this guy to be an accomplice. But yeah, so Boris Karloff uh, comes to him and he's like, "You got to do." Boris Karloff is like, "I've done these crimes my whole life because I'm ugly, doctor. I need you to do plastic surgery on me to make me beautiful so that I don't have to do crimes anymore." Yeah, and when he first comes and is like, "I want you to give me a new face because I'm a I'm a criminal," I was like, "Oh, he's trying to like." evade the law by That's getting a new I, yeah. face. And then it's like, no, I have come to this understanding about myself that because I am ugly, people view me as like a bad person. And because the societal viewing and understanding of me is a bad person, it has like meant that in my social station, I feel like I have to do bad people things to get by because people aren't going to hire me to do. He's like having this like understanding, (laughs) but without any way of like, and so I'm going to do something else about it. It's just like, I've decided that I need a surgery for my face to be beautiful. Yeah. I got class consciousness, but all I want is plastic (laughs) surgery. So I don't have to be class conscious anymore. (laughs) (laughs) And my class is ugly people. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And so the, uh, you know, uh, Bela Lugosi is like, yes, I I will do the surgery. And then is like, oh, I can't like actually change your face, but there are these little nerves on the back of your neck. And if I pull them these certain ways, it'll like change how you, your face looks. And Um, so basically he just, what happens in the movie is that he like, I don't know how to say this non-problematically because it's like a universal monster movie. He like basically just gives Boris Karloff a stroke to where he can't move the less left side of his face. That's yeah. what happens here. It's weird. <laughs> yeah. Like the, cause the, the like prosthetics that they're putting, yes. like it even like covers his eye. So his eye won't move and stuff. Right. Yeah. It's weird. It's um, uncomfortable. And like, it's like literally like a line, like you can see where the prosthetics start. Yeah. On the neck, too. You can, like, see the line of it. It's it's weird and uncomfortable, and also it looks really good. I, yeah. I do just love to see Boris Karloff in a prosthetic sauntering around. And it, it's funny because it's so obvious that it's a prosthetic, but also, like... Who cares? Yeah. <laughs> it's just a, like, oh, they just put a weird, like, half of a face on him, and now he's got a, like, half of his face is all, like, contorted. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and so then, oh, now... He's even, the doctor's like, I've made you even more ugly, so now you will do the <laughs> evil deeds that I want you to do. Right. Um, and he's like, can't really argue with your logic there. Yeah, I guess I will help you with evil yeah, because I'm I have, even uglier. <laughs> I have convinced myself that the way that people view me does 
like fully predetermine the acts that I have <laughs> that I can do in society. So since you did make me more ugly, I guess I will do the evil deeds. Also, you tell me that if I do them, you'll fix my face. And despite the fact that you've done nothing but trick me so yes. far, I will choose to believe this. Okay, I believe you. <laughs> um, and so Bill Lugosi, um, earlier in the movie, like saved this like. 20-year-old dancer's life, right? And he's yeah. hot for her. And she's going to get married to this medical student. But Bella Lugosi's hot for her. But then her dad is like, well, you can't marry my 20-year-old daughter. You're you're old. You're Bella Lugosi. No. <laughs> um, <coughs> and so Bella Lugosi invites the daughter, the, the, the husband-to-be, and the father to his, like, rich person house to stay the yeah. weekend. But he also invites four people that have nothing to do with this. Four just totally innocent people that he then lures into his torture plans, basically. Yeah. <laughs> because basically they're all like, okay, we had a nice little party, we had a little soiree, and now we're all going to sleep in Bella Lugosi's fancy mansion, and then we'll go home tomorrow morning. Yeah. And bedtime's at 11, and so right at 11, Bella Lugosi's going to start his torture plot. Yeah, he doesn't wait for people to fall asleep. He's like, okay, well, we all turned like, in at 10. It's 11.01. Let's fucking go. <laughs> yeah. Like, I would wait till, like, midnight or 1. Yeah. Just to, like, make sure. Because, like, part of his undoing in this is that everybody in the house, except for these two people who, like, he gave sleeping powder to because they were like, oh, I can't sleep. He's like, okay, well, have some sleeping powder, whatever that is. Here's some melatonin. And those people don't wake up, and it's like a little punchline at the end of the movie. I'm sure it's some way more dangerous chemical than melatonin. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> but, like, part of his undoing is that everybody in the house is basically still awake because they only just went to bed. Yeah. <laughs> and... But he gets Although, every... <laughs> he does almost get away from or away with it. He does nearly get away with it. Yeah, I mean, there are parts where I'm like, man, he like did not think this through, and then it's like, well, now that everyone's in that room, we can close all the shutters, and I'm like, wait a minute. Yeah. Did you plan for people to be awake and then do the? Why were you like <laughs> now that people are asleep anyway? We're part of it is it's just fun to nitpick how stupid of a movie this is, yes. but it was really fun to watch. But he has like his trick bookcase in his study, and he, he like. Boris Karloff like brings um uh the judge the, the the father down to um like the torture chamber behind the trick bookcase and I I just like when there's a trick bookcase in a in a movie that leads to a torture chamber I just yeah. think that's fun and yeah. he like puts the judge on the pit in the pendulum and then he has like this is the craziest thing of the whole movie. <laughs> So the the husband to be leaves the bedroom or no cuz they're not they're not married yet so they're sleeping in separate bedrooms and the bedroom that the girl that Bella Lugosi's hot for uh was apparently an elevator platform the whole time so he flips his big like frankenstein switch and the whole elevator that the room is on comes down to the torture chamber. Yeah, and then there's a part where they open the doors in the torture chamber part, and the, the elevator's still coming down, because they gotta get that shot. But obviously, building a like an elevator that has an entire room uh -huh. in the 30s? <laughs> we don't make elevators that big now. Right. 
Uh, and so it's just so funny how it's like very obviously a composited shot of like them shooting the room and they're just like having it move. Like they're, the, they're the moving the, the composite, not yes. like the room itself. Yeah. Yeah. They're moving the shot of the room yeah. down. Um, and then her having to react to what she's seeing, but not actually seeing, just screaming at like the camera basically uh-huh. in the, you know. Oh. It's a great shot. It's fun to see, but it's also just like, man, this is it's... ridiculous. And it mostly it was just somebody had the idea for the composite shot of a room elevator <laughs> is really what it feels like. The the other idea that's really fun here is like the husband to be like, he hears the room. He's hears something happening. He hears her scream. So he runs into the room, but the room is gone. And so he just like falls into this pit and like luckily he's like still holding on to the door handle and he like pulls himself up by the door handle <laughs> it's fucking sick as hell yeah um but basically they all end up in the torture chamber um and Bella Lugosi is like pointing a gun at them and he like gets the the girl and the husband to be into the trash compactor from Star Wars. Yeah. Um, the whole time we're hooting and hollering being like, 3BO! 3BO! <laughs> and then they're like, oh, R2, can you hear that? They're screaming! <laughs> they're dying, R2! But basically, they're about to be crushed, and Boris Karloff is thinking about, that lady was nice to me. Maybe yeah. just... she did scream in horror the first time that she saw me, but then came in after and was like, I just want you to know I, I'm not a bad person. I don't scream at people with weird faces. It's just that you opened the door and you, came into my room. You and did that's sneak up me. on me. It wasn't you, that you were yeah. ugly. It's that you snuck up on me. By the way, you are ugly. I'm going to uh, affirm that, but I'm yeah. going to apologize. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so he thinks to himself, maybe just because I'm ugly, I don't have to do crimes. And he, he, um, like overpowers Bella Lugosi and like gets the the couple out of the trash compactor and puts himself in Bella Lugosi. No, no, he Bella gets L- shot and yeah, Bella you know. shoots him and he puts Bella Lugosi in the trash compactor. Yeah, room. while he's like more like fatally wounded but still moving around, like shoves Bella Lugosi and drags him into the yeah trash compactor and he, like Bella Lugosi's a little knocked out at first and then wakes up in time for for the door closing ah! to get that. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, then there's uh, and like, then dies because he was shot. Yeah. So. And then there's like two or three little punchlines as like all the nice, normal looking people who weren't evil just go about their their days. Basically, the the one where like they have survived and they're driving, like the mm-hmm. the couple was just stupid. The one that did make me laugh is the the ones with the sleeping powder waking up, being like, "Oh, <laughs> I had such a nice sleep." Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, the movie does end on, and stop me if you've heard that. I think maybe we'll have a little more to say about this. Um, the woman, the movie just sort of constructs a scenario where this woman has been menaced by an evil man and just sort of like, and then she felt no trauma from this at all. Yeah. Um, and just a happy song plays and they go about their day. They, they went back to their uh, happy, idyllic American life. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if the we'll have, end. I wonder if we'll have more to say about this as we talk about the films of David Lynch. Yeah. Um, Sarah's, I feel like we, we got up to an A when we were watching. Yeah. At one point we were like B plus cause it wasn't quite working for us, but they did enough with it that I felt like it got to an A, maybe an yeah. A minus, you know, but I think an A. 
Yeah, I think it ate. The, the, the stairs going down to the torture chamber gets <clears throat> used a couple times, and it's, those are pretty good stairs. Yeah. Well, that does it for other movies we've watched. Uh, only an hour 15 into this podcast. I thought we were at like an yeah. hour 45. Um, I don't remember if there's any stairs in No Frank and Lumberton. I want to just hit that before we get into it, but we'll talk about it more yeah. when we get into Blue Velvet because... But yeah, here um, begins the David Lynch segment more or less. No Frank and Lumberton is a documentary about the making of um, Blue Velvet, and so... Yeah, uh, so the to do like a little extra background. So one is, I'm just trying to find like weird... I feel like you're doing a little bit more like reading some stuff yeah. about Lynch, and part of what I'm trying to do is just like find... Any weird film ephemera I can that seems to be, like, pretty closely tied to him. Yes. Like, I want to, like, just take in visual stuff about Lynch. Yeah. Um, And so this one, when we were watching the... I have the Blu-ray of uh, Blue Velvet. When we had that in, we were looking at the menu. Uh, there's a documentary uh, seemingly called Blue Velvet Revisited um, that is by the same director, uh, Peter Bratz. Um who is a, a German director. Mm. And I was like, this is longer. Is this like, what is this? Um, I haven't watched that one yet. I'll probably will by the next episode. Um, but uh, yeah, from from the little bit I, I checked out on the Blu-ray, it seemed to be a lot more of like a... Well, basically what happened is... I think you're looking into how this guy met Lynch. He like yes, I I read his Wikipedia page. That, well, he doesn't have a Wikipedia page. Um, Blue Blue Velvet Revisited has a Wikipedia page, and basically I was reading that, and it's like he was uh, a singer in like an avant-garde punk band, and then he went to film school, and he um basically he wrote an essay about the Elephant Man, and then he like like somehow managed to get David Lynch to read it and they just yeah. sort of started like exchanging letters on and off yeah, for like a year Yeah, he sent it to Mel Brooks, which uh, we didn't talk about on the Elephant Man episode, but that was produced by Mel Brooks. Um, it's intentionally, he intentionally left his name off of like credits and things because mm. he thought that if if it was billed as, or if people even saw at the beginning produced by Mel Brooks, they would be expecting a, a like comedy. comedy in his style, and he didn't he didn't want to set up that expectation for the movie. Yeah, that it's like a Mel Brooks thing. He wanted uh, to let it be a Lynch thing. A weird thing about like Mel Brooks, I guess, is that he is a sort of like Martin Scorsese esque, like both like connoisseur of just like I watched like thousands and thousands of movies, and also like champion of the arts like champion of like we got to make sure like these things are preserved and remembered and it's so funny because uh, like martin scorsese like accomplished some of the accomplishes this by like making movies that are sort of like in dialogue with old movies and and mel brooks does this too but he's doing comedies and so he's not taken seriously yeah <laughs> but i think he's doing like the same work that scorsese is doing yeah. <laughs> on some level um, there's a certain amount uh, of Mel Brooks that reminds me also of Weird Al of like, there's a, a deep appreciation and understanding of like the styles Yes, that goes into the parodies that he's making. Yes. Which is why like Spaceballs, I think, I, I think Spaceballs is really funny, but is like the least of the Mel Brooks movies in some ways, because it's like, he doesn't actually like this shit in a way that like young Frankenstein, he likes that shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, 
But yeah, so it's just yeah. I just I like Mel Brooks, and that was felt like an appropriate time to be like, hey, Mel Brooks, better than you think he is, and I. Most people really like Mel Brooks, but like I think people don't think of him as like a serious person, and I think like he has more to him than just haha funnies. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, just to briefly talk about No Frank and Lumberton. Yes. Again, maybe I'll watch the Blue Velvet Revisited, and it will be a little bit more like this. But the beginning did not seem like that. Yeah. So Bratz Bratz corresponds with Lynch for some time, and then like Lynch is just like, "Hey, do you want to come like shoot footage of me shooting my new movie?" And that movie yeah. becomes Blue Velvet. And yeah, he puts out No Frank and Lumberton in 88 and he puts out Blue Velvet Revisited in 90, I want to say, were the years. Yeah. Something like that. Um, But yeah, and so No Frank and Lumberton is like a very uh, like abstract documentary. I've mm-hmm. watched a lot of documentaries like this. I Some of the documentary work that I did was like this. Um, I You watched a little bit of it with me. I watched like the back half of it with yeah. you because you watched some of it last night. Um, and then like, I came over today and you were like, oh, let me finish this before we start recording. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of it, like I described it to you as a documented, uh, documentarian's documentary, because so much of it is about the things that like you as someone who shoots documentary footage gets excited about. Um, at least like the type of stuff that I was interested in, which is, oh, we were rolling the tapes for a while before we did the interview and, Look at this, like, look at how this person's behaving before the interview. This is, like, what I find more interesting than their actual answers mm-hmm. to to my questions. There's, a, um, there's also, like, I don't know about this movie in particular, but Don Hertzfeld definitely watched a bunch of documentaries like this and was like, what if I just make, like, narrative features yeah. <laughs> out of this, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, and so it's a lot of, there's a lot of... Footage shot behind the scenes and a, and a lot of audio, uh-huh. but it's very rarely, you occasionally get it, but very rarely do you have someone talking and you see like the video of them talking and the audio of them talking synced up. Mm-hmm. Um, like there's a moment in here where you're hearing a recording or like practice maybe or something of the Blue Velvet song, mm-hmm. But the footage is her getting ready to sing while they're, like, doing prep stuff. And she's standing there at the mic, but, like, not singing and just kind of, like, trying to, like, amp herself up and stuff. Because there's a documentary that's more interested in what are the things that people go through while making something. And let me, like, juxtapose some of that with maybe the finished audio. Or I'll juxtapose it with um, here we're, we're listening to someone talk while we're then seeing them just, like, fidgeting around on set or something. We see footage, and I couldn't tell if it was, like, if this was, like, Isabella Rossellini's, like, actual, like, hair that grows out of her head, or if it was a, like, oh, wait, like, in this, we were trying, like, a bunch of different wigs for for Isabella Rossellini. She's, like, yeah. wearing a wig through most of the film itself, and I couldn't tell if it was, like, we're trying on different wigs, or we're trying to, like, style her regular hair, um, it's a very like blurry, dark footage, but it was kind of interesting. The thing that I said to you <clears throat> was that like a lot of like more like typical documentaries will have like, you know, like the talking heads and the interviews and, um, the, like, it sort of creates this thing of like blue, like we had this script and then that like or or we wrote the script and then the script became like the pre-production and then the production and then the post-production and the release and it sort of presents like 
Blue Velvet is this finished piece of art that exists in the world, and there is a sort of, like, one continuous line you can draw from, like, its conception to its release, and that's, like, very simple. And we're going to try to, like, document that, and we're going to try to explain it to you possibly, like, very academically or perhaps some more populist, but we're going to, like, explain the process of... But the focus is on, like... And I think that part of the reason why this, like, that style that you're talking about becomes a popular style of documentary is that lots of people like to watch the documentary where you have some experts tell you something and you watch some archival footage or see some photos or whatever while they're telling you stuff that they're mm-hmm. experts in. And then you come away from it at the end being like, oh, now I know a lot about how they shot Blue Velvet or whatever. Right. Now, you know, now I know a lot about Lydia Lunch. Um, but, like... What this documentary does, and I think it elucidates something for me that I find limiting about that other type of documentary, is that, like, by showing you, here's different wigs we were trying for Isabella Rossellini. Here is, like, David Lynch talking with one of his, like, producers or or someone else on set and being like, damn, we should have got that shot last night. We had everything like perfectly set up and we should have got this shot. This shot would have made the scene. Or just like Laura Dern and Kyle MacLachlan like on set just kind of like chit-chatting. David Lynch just like milling about. Angelo yeah. ba- like Angelo Battlementi just like playing random notes on the organ trying... Or no, David Lynch is like playing random chords on the organ just trying to find the sound for something. Yeah. By showing all that, it sort of to me, reminds you that, like, movies are not, like, movies do not, like, come into being by magic, and, it like, no one knows what the movie is going to be while they're making it. Movies are made by people show up to work every day and punch a clock, and this movie is, like, very good at, like, through its abstractions, showing that process of, like, like, the art is made... Not by, like, you know, not by some mysterious artistic process, but by, like, labor, you know? Yeah. Well, and this is also giving you, like, the, the more straight talking heads documentary style would be, like, giving you the production schedule, right? Like, mm-hmm. what it, what is the... What is the process of, like, you do the work, here's the production schedule, here's when we're going to do the shot, here's when we're going to do that. It's not going to give you, like, the full granularity of it, but it's going to mm-hmm. give you that kind of understanding of doing work, which is, like, the production manager running a schedule of this is when we do the things so we can get stuff done on time. Right. It's, like, that kind of understanding of, like, the actual, like, quote-unquote work mm-hmm. in, like, a very, like, defined, like, you're accomplishing goals sort of perspective. Mm-hmm. This is about... Like, he, you have that schedule, and then also there's this moment of downtime, and, like, I posted this on Twitter, and people fucking loved it because it's David Lynch and coffee. Yeah. But, like, there's this part where I, I like, there's just, uh, I forget what song it is. It's There's some song just playing. Yeah. Um, that's, like, not even in the movie. A lot of really neat music in this documentary. Yeah. Um, and it's just, it just seems to be footage of David Lynch, like, sitting in the director's chair, uh there might not even be anything happening at this moment. And he's got this cup of coffee and he takes a sip and like grimace it. Like just the, the intensity of his reaction of like, Oh yeah, I've had bad coffee like that. Yeah. And then he's like kind of looking around being like, is there like someone I can get to fix? Like, is there a different pot of coffee somewhere? And then just resigns himself to drinking it. Maybe if I get more cream in here, 
I'd have to get someone yeah. over here to give me the more cream in the coffee, whatever. And it's like <laughs> my my boss will ask me for updates on what I've been doing and I'll be talking about like, oh, I was calling the supplier and I've been doing some research into like how to explain this product to customers or whatever. Uh I'm not doing the part where I'm like, and then I got up and I like shuffled around and made myself a pot of coffee or a pot of like tea because it's the afternoon. Yeah. I tend to drink tea more in the afternoon. Um, and, you know, at this point, like Emily was like, do you want to watch a funny video? Because she was taking a short break and watching some TikToks and I'll like go over there. And, right. You know, I'm thinking and I'm just like sitting there, like leaning back, like you know, doing some weird thing that I'm not even fully conscious of with my hands or I'm just, like, fiddling with something on my desk. Yeah. This is a documentary that's interesting in all of that other parts of work. There's a... there. My favorite part... And like I say, I only saw, like, the back half of this. Yeah. Um, but my favorite part is at the very end, more or less, <laughs> there's a big... T- like, there's, like, 15 minutes left and the, the very, very end is just, like, a long shot of the of water and then a long shot of the inner workings of an organ... And then credits. But before that, there's a little title card that says, Hats off to Jack Nance. It's so good. And then a little breakbeat starts playing. And you just see, like, footage of, like, Jack Nance in this movie, like, maybe, like, getting himself into character, almost. He's kind of, like, walking around. And you can see him, like, sort of trying different facial expressions, maybe. Or, like, he's thinking about something to, like, get into, like, the mood. Um, he's like adjusting his hat and then you just hear him talking about, I don't really like movies. Like I find the whole suspension of disbelief thing. Like I'm just too old for that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Maybe it's just like a a thing, like how you grow out of like childhood or something. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And there's just, yeah, there's just like a breakbeat going on. Yeah. And I got to say hats off to Jack Nance, the true hero of this podcast. Yeah. Um, we, I, there's a moment where Jack Nance shows up in Blue Velvet and commenting on of like, man, he really tried to get his boy in all of his movies, but they said, uh, no, you can't have him play the elephant man. And it, at that point, I think David Lynch learned, I need to put Jack Nance as like a background character in all my movies. Imagine if Jack Nance had played Bites. Oh, that would have been good. L- listen, like I'm not, I think John Hurt is like, one of the greatest actors. I love John Hurt. I'm not trying to displace him from the Elephant Man. I'm not going to be here like, oh man, we should have had someone else play John Merrick. What I'm saying is, you should have got like, there were a lot of like, grumpy, poor English people in that movie that Jack Nance could very easily have been one of them. Yeah. <laughs> could have been Bites. Could have been the guy who's like, getting, um, Selling tickets to come see Merrick in the hospital or whatever. Yeah. Any number of things. But, yeah. But also then you would have had to get Jack Nance doing a, a an accent, which maybe also that's not the vibe. I don't I, know. I could see uh, if if Jack Nance did Bites, I could see it working without much of an accent. Because yeah. that's just kind of a, a, a guy who would expect to travel around. Yeah, maybe. And so may not actually be a, like an Englishman. Yeah. But... <laughs> um. Yeah. Should we actually talk about Blue Velvet now that we've talked about this weird... The other thing is, so people can go watch this on rarefilmm.com. And one thing that's kind of funny about it is that 
so this is like from when it was shown on German TV. So you didn't see the very beginning is like someone introducing the program and it's just in German. Um, but there's no subtitles cause most of it's English, but th- like throughout you'll get German subtitles for stuff. Mm-hmm. They don't subtitle everything that's said. They, yeah. And they're also, I don't, the subtitles do not like sort of sync up really with like, yeah, anything. all the time. <laughs> I mean, it's, like, I mean, I guess you read German and I yeah. don't, so maybe I'm wrong. But it is it is like not super well synced subtitles. They are translations of things being said, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, like I'm sure it, even as a German audience, it's more of a tone piece than like necessarily yeah. needing to hear all the words. But yeah, um, there's so much stuff that's like. I'm sure you got a clean take of like this person saying this and you've just added a little voice filter because you think it sounds cool. You yeah. know, like you made it sound like this person's talking on a walkie talkie. Someone who, who's dealt with a lot of um, like part of, I think how this comes about too, is that sometimes when you're doing this stuff, mm-hmm. you don't always have the best audio and video. And so sometimes you're like, well, I got this, this thing where like I can kind of hear in the background here like I was literally just trying to shoot like b-roll but I ended up catching something in the background and the audio is not great let's pull that audio try and see how we can clean it up and then I'm going to just put it over other b-roll that I shot of that person or Mm. whatever Um, this is also kind of how some of this comes about especially like this is a um, cheaper lower production thing uh, mm. doing like the full cinema verite thing, which this is kind of operating in the mold of, but like um, doing the like don't look back version and in- involves an amount of budget to just continue to shoot on film. Yeah. Until the porta pack is developed. Right. And like, <clears throat> you know, in the, in the page on blue, blue velvet revisited on Wikipedia, it talks about like, you know, Bratz had to like, fly himself and his equipment from Germany. And so this is all shot on super eight because it's lighter. So he could bring more, Yeah, you know, like it's a movie on super eight because that was the thing that was easy to shoot it on. Yeah. Um, Um, should we get into blue velvet? Yeah. Before we do, we watched so many movies. I'm just trying to scroll back up to blue velvet. Can I tell you something that may surprise you? What? I need to use the restroom. Oh. <laughs> I guess I'll go to the bathroom, too. Yeah. I'm just going to mark this, and we'll just edit this. Yeah. A candy-colored clown they call the Sandman Tiptoes to my room every night Just to sprinkle stardust and to whisper Go to sleep, everything is all right I close my eyes I drift away into the magic night. I say a silent like dreamers do. Then I fall asleep to dream my 
definitely rated the stairs for elephant man and dune and didn't type it into the sheet maybe yeah i don't know if we did though oh. i feel like we did I feel like we talked about it while we were watching the movie i feel like elephant so, man was it like a b i want to say and the, maybe like, like a b plus because you do have the stairs that go up to where he is in the yeah yeah and then like dune maybe got itself to an a just on the strength of the cover art maybe or maybe an a minus yeah there were like not a lot of good stairs, but the stairs that we used for the cover art were really good, and so I think we like gave it a pretty good grade. Yeah, I don't know. Blue Velvet, uh, nineteen eighty six film from David Lynch. Um, as we talked about on the last episode, Dino De Laurentiis. Um, oh, and I, I didn't. I read an interview that that Lynch did about Blue Velvet that had a lot of like funny little tidbits I wanted to pull out here for this little intro section, and I forgot about it. Maybe I'll bring it in for next week. But, um... <clears throat> so Dino De Laurentiis says, hey, if you do Dune, um, you know, I will finance on the cheap, on the fucking cheap, um, a movie that's more of a passion project for you. And so David Lynch makes Dune, it flops, but he's already signed the contract, he's gonna do Blue Velvet. Um, this is... The return of um, Kyle MacLachlan working with uh, David Lynch. Um, Kyle MacLachlan has talked about like feeling really like like Dune flopped, and he was like certain because like Lynch had talked about Blue Velvet with MacLachlan before Dune, and he's like, "Oh man, Dune flopped. I'm not going to get to be in uh, Blue Velvet now. He's going to like go and get like a more marketable star." And he he has said like, "Oh, that's when what really cemented our friendship is that even though." Dune wasn't very good. Like he came, he like he was true to his word and came back to me, and we did Blue Velvet. Um, this is also um, uh, the first of many movies that David Lynch is going to do with Laura Dern. Um, she's phenomenal in this movie. This is also the only film um, that Lynch is going to do with um, Isabella Rossellini, who is a international supermodel that he was. Apparently never married to. I always think that he, like, married and divorced divorced her very quickly, but he was just dating her and in tabloids with her for quite some time. Yeah. Um, but Isabella Rossellini, I think of as, like, central to, like, the canon of David Lynch, even though she's only in this one movie, because, like, of his relationship with her and how his relationship with her sort of launches him further into, like, stardom, because she was way more famous than him at this point, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Um, we've obviously both seen it before, um, before we watched 
watched it this time? What did you sort of like make of Blue Velvet? When was like the last time you'd watched it? What was your what were you like thinking about going into it? Yeah, it had been a while since I watched Blue Velvet. Um, again, this may be hard for people to believe who listen to this podcast, but there was a lengthy period of time where I wasn't watching many movies because mm-hmm. I burned myself out after grad school. And so my guess is like probably like I mean grad school time. Mm-hmm. This maybe when I watched it last. Okay. <clears throat> I haven't seen it in a little while. Um, I'd seen it multiple times. Though. Uh, I I believe this is the first Lynch thing that mm-hmm. I ever saw. Same I'm for me. I'm not sure of the timeline, but I think it is. Yeah. Um, this is the first Lynch thing I saw. Um, I was super taken with this movie the first time I saw it. I thought it was amazing. And then, the, like, I've seen it a bunch of times. And I remember the last time thinking, I saw it thinking... I don't know. It's all right. It's pretty good. This time, I was like fully like this is one of David Lynch's like best movies. I yeah. I was so much more taken with Blue Velvet this time than I had been the last few times, and I think part of it is that I I started to see a lot more to it than maybe like the the general understanding. Both the like general understanding. I think like there is a popular way of understanding this movie that I had sort of taken in as my own opinion too. And watching the movie this time, I was sort of able to see that there's a lot more going on in this movie than like maybe, maybe I had understood or maybe like, says like the, the film criticism apparatus, uh, had taught me to understand about this movie. Yeah. Um, should we summarize it? How do we, how do we want to do this? <laughs> yeah, we can, we can do a little summary. You want me to summarize? You want to summarize? I'm fine with either. I, I'll summarize. Okay. I'm already talking. I'm yeah bullshitting. Um, so Kyle MacLachlan is a like young college student, maybe like freshman or sophomore. Um, his dad has a heart attack one day while um watering the lawn, <clears throat> and um Kyle MacLachlan like comes home from his like university to lumberton usa we're never given a state it's not like you know yeah um there's a funny part in um the no frank in lumberton where someone's asking i think it's like might be the the german director of that but mm-hmm. it's like asking about like lumberton like where is it located or whatever like those sorts of things like is this like a based on a real place and David Lynch is like it's called Lumberton because you hear the name and you instantly know what this place is yeah <laughs> in the movie like it, toward the beginning and in toward the end you hear like the like at 8am every morning there's a radio show in Lumberton that they sing the little Lumberton jingle and they're like, all right, everybody, let's get out there and chop some wood today. Interestingly, yeah. you don't see anybody chop wood in this movie, but that is like the basis of the town economy. Yeah. Um, and maybe I'll bring in like biography stuff from that, but we'll circle back there in a minute. Um, I did a weird amount of reading and I don't know how much of it's going to come up in the podcast. Yeah. Well, I could talk about it after I summarize. So Kyle McLaughlin is home sort of, Sort of like nominally like looking after his dad after his dad's heart attack. Never actually does that. The dad's in like two scenes tops. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because what actually happens is that walking home from seeing his dad in the hospital one day, he like finds a severed ear in a field. Um, <clears throat> and he takes that to 
the police department. Um, one of the detectives there, like, lives a couple doors down from McLaughlin's character, Jeffrey Beaumont. Um, I'll, I might call him Jeffrey. I might call him, call him Kyle. I don't know. Whatever. Who cares? Yeah. <laughs> um, so he takes that to Detective Williams and... You know, Williams is like, okay, well, we'll investigate this. And he, McLaughlin, like, is leaving Williams's house. He, like, Williams is like, okay, I, you, the this is a police matter now. I don't want you looking into this anymore, basically. And McLaughlin is like, okay, sure. And he's leaving, and he bumps into Laura Dern's character, who is Detective Williams's daughter, Sandy. Um... And they have a sort of conversation, and they decide they're going to investigate this after all. And so she's, like, overheard a little bit from her dad and, like, thinks that, like, oh, maybe this is connected to um, this singer, Dorothy Valens, who the police were sort of keeping an eye on for a while. They go and see Dorothy Valens um, sing, and McLaughlin <clears throat> hatches this plan to sneak into her apartment um, that Laura Dern is like clearly uncomfortable with, and she asks famously, "Are are you a detective or a pervert?" And McLaughlin replies, "I guess we'll have to find out." And all the <laughs> psychoanalysts watching this movie fire up their computers or <laughs> potentially typewriters. So he does. He sneaks in and he hides in the closet. Um, <clears throat> and uh, Valens takes a call from this guy named Frank who will be played by Dennis Hopper. Uh, Valens, obviously played by Rosa Isabella Rossellini. Um, she takes a call and McLaughlin sort of infers from the call that um, like Frank has like kidnapped Valens' son and husband. Uh, the ear is from the husband um, and <clears throat> like Frank is like kidnapped them and is like using that for like leverage over balance basically she finds him in the closet they sort of start to fuck a little bit and then frank comes over and um and, and kyle like hides in the closet again and witnesses a like really like charged rape scene you know yeah like this is like the thing that this movie is known for is like how dark this rape scene gets. Um, Rosalini is fucking incredible in this scene. <clears throat> um, so from here, McLaughlin is sort of like leading this double life. He's like going and talking to Sandy in the days and like um, talking about like, we have to investigate this. We have to help this woman, you know, um, and like, also sort of like subtly pulling uh, Sandy more and more in, you know, of like, you need to help me with these things. And in doing so, gets like more and more like romantically involved with her. Meanwhile, at night, um, he is going to Isabella Rossellini's depart apartment and like fucking her and talking about how I want to help you. Um, but the help mostly seems to come through fucking. <laughs> Uh, and like vaguely being like a almost like a th there's the part where he's uh got the camera and he's like observing and he's got his little like shoebox that he's like it's not just a hole in the shoebox 
Yes. Which you could do. It's like rigged up with a little like flap whenever it takes a photo. Once uh, again, the psychoanalysts are. Yeah. <laughs> but also in a way that like has just big like, you're just like being a hardy boy vibes, but with something way darker than hardy boys would do. Literally. So I skimmed like six different articles and like three different books that touched on Blue Velvet, and every single one of them mentions the Hardy Boys here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so, so yeah, he's like fucking her. Other important thing, I guess, to note here is that like when they're fucking, like Isabella Rossellini's character is like, "I want you to hurt me," um, and uh, McLaughlin's character is sort of unwilling to do this. For the most part, he eventually does this and we'll probably talk about that more as we're like analyzing the movie, but he eventually does hurt her and things happen. Anyway, he continues his investigation of Frank and he's got his little shoebox camera and Frank is involved with the police, he realizes. And so he goes back to um, Detective Williams with this new information before he goes back to Detective Williams with this information, actually. Um... He realizes that um, he realizes that Frank is like doing deals with the police that involve drugs in some way, and 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 murder. He's gonna go to the police tomorrow. Tonight he's fucking Isabella Rossellini, <clears throat> um, and as he's leaving Rossellini's apartment, Frank and his boys are coming over. His yeah. his boys played by Brad Dourif, aka Wormtongue, Jack Nance, aka the Goat, and some other dude. Who's not important. Yeah. <laughs> um, and this is another one of the most like iconic sequences of the movie is like Frank driving around town with um uh um Kyle, Kyle McLaughlin, McLaughlin taking him to like a brothel. There's singing happening, we'll get to it. This is all like more aesthetic, not plot stuff. <laughs> Anyway, yeah. my plot summary is running too long to begin with. Uh, Frank, like, threatens him a bunch, but basically, like, lets him off the hook at the end of this night. Like, yeah. beats the tar out of him and lets him off the hook. Um, just a, a quick note. We finally did it, y'all. We watched a movie where a man puts lipstick on and kisses another man, and it's not gay in the slightest. It's not even a little We're bit We're not going to talk at all about how the, they're secretly gay. No. <laughs> Uh, it's purely just a straight man intimidating another man with, uh, like, homosexual acts in a way that's extremely straight. So, um, yeah, so McLaughlin goes to the police, and because, uh, Frank is involved with the police, he gets wind of this, and he kills Valens' husband, um, kills the detective that he's involved with, um, like, Strips Rosalini naked, like assaults her and like throws her out on um, McLaughlin's lawn, basically. And so it's at this point, a couple things happen. One, like the this double life that he's been leading, like he's on a date with um, Laura Dern's character when Rosalini is like assaulted naked on his lawn. Um, and so that double life sort of all comes crashing into one another. Laura Dern like realizes that. He's been fucking um, Rosalini while also like telling her that he loves her. <clears throat> and there's a big sort of climactic, like actiony thing, like the most actiony that a David Lynch movie is going to get as like 
Frank's going to come kill McLaughlin and McLaughlin hides in the closet and shoots him. And this all wraps up with at the beginning of the movie. So basically Frank dies. Isabella Rossellini lives. The kid lives. Um, and in the end, at the beginning of the movie, we have seen like these various like visions of like a, a, perfect and idyllic America, the sort of thing that like Lynch describes in his memoir about how he imagines the fifties, this like perfect and beautiful thing. And, we, and there's the iconic shot of it zooms in on the like weird beetles. Yeah. Uh, underneath. Yeah. yeah. And so we, we get a repetition of that sequence. Um, and we add to it that like now seemingly like Laura Dern and Kyle McLaughlin's family are all living under one roof question mark. Or maybe they're all just over for lunch, but McLaughlin and Laura Dern are are involved, and um, they see this Robin. And earlier, Laura Dern had a dream about how Robins are love, and we'll we'll get yeah, there they, too. They will return, and then everything will be good. Yeah. And they see a Robin, and they had to do an animatronic Robin because they wanted it to have the little beetle from the beginning in its mouth. Yeah, and and, and like you know, very like. Angelic choir, Angelo Battlementi music is playing as like, ah, everything's perfect and good. And then we cut back to Isabella Rossellini and she's safe and her and her son are at the park and she's giving her son a hug and the angelic music is interrupted by her singing. And I still can see Blue Velvet through my tears. And um, her her face, as she's holding her child and like the child can no longer see her face, yeah. is like starting to change into a different emotion. Yeah, like troubled by, by yes. something. Um, and then we... we this zoom. shot is very important for us. Yes. What, what we think is actually going on with this. <laughs> and, and once again, mirroring the beginning of the movie, the, the beginning of the movie has the credits playing over like blue velvet curtains. The blue velvet curtains fade into this blue sky of like perfect, American suburbs and here we we pan from Rosalini's face to that blue sky and that blue sky fades back into the blue velvet curtains and we get you know production credits basically the yeah. less important people <laughs> um yeah <laughs> spent, a, spent a good part of this podcast earlier talking about how none of these people are less important now not the less important people <laughs> <laughs> the electricians who worked on this movie they're not important <laughs> Yeah. Marx's alienation of labor. <laughs> anyway. When you when you have a system where people get paid different amounts based on the work they do, it uh-huh. creates a hierarchy where certain work is valued and prized <laughs> as more important than the other because you've determined with money that that is more valuable. But the movie simply would not get made without the electricians. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so yeah, this movie's fucking great, I think. Um, and I, I guess what I want to start with is like that I don't, the movie functions because of its aesthetics. I, uh, so the, here's where I'll start. And I know I've been going for a long time and you can feel free to interrupt me. I'm sorry. No, it's fine. The general perception of this movie, or maybe my perception of this movie prior to seeing it this time is that like there is a perfect and good America that existed, but underneath that was darkness, you know, of like 
drugs and prostitution and, and violence yeah. and all these things. This idyllic town has a secret dark side. Yes. And that is sort of like all there was. There was a very like flatness to this movie. And so going into it, I was like, oh, man, it's just going to kind of belabor that one point. And I think there's a lot of different layers to what this movie is doing. And I think those things are established through like a lot of aesthetic stuff that is not going to get picked up in like sort of stricter like I'm analyzing the script and the things that are said. There's a lot happening in the images and the sound that convey that depth that I think if you don't look at that stuff, you're not going to see. I think if you're not looking at the way that Laura Dern is Laura Dern's fucking incredible performance in this movie or the way that like Angelo Badalamenti's score can be ironic or sarcastic or or earnest, you know? Yeah. Um or certain images. Like I think if you're not looking at those things and you're just sort of like taking things at a face value, you're missing a lot of what's happening in this movie, you know? Yeah. Um what like I, I guess I have two points off of that. One is this movie would not be great if there was not like actual, uh, and I'm not even saying this necessarily as like truly romantic, but like there's chemistry that you can feel that like Laura Dern and Cal McLaughlin just vibe as people. Yes. And are like have that just like energy and connection with each other. Yeah. That then can, can sell all of that side of things. Yes. Where, like, there's a part where they're just walking, and Kyle McLaughlin is just being a fucking dweeb and, like, does, like, a chicken walk and yeah. stuff. But, one, Kyle McLaughlin, part of the, like, beauty of him as an actor is that he can do that, and it's kind of charming. Yes, he is the dorkiest motherfucker in human history. And you kind of love that about him. Yes. Um, And it also then adds to him being in this other scenario that yes. is, like, the darker yes. side of it. Um, him being also the dweeb who's going to just, like, yeah, do a chicken walk, and that Laura Dern's going to be charmed by it because also you as an audience, at least if you were like someone like me who enjoys Kyle MacLachlan in movies, you're going to be charmed by it too. Uh huh. And I think Laura Dern is just somebody who thinks that that's charming. I think she just like she does a lot of really fucking great acting. Mm-hmm. In that moment, she's just laughing because her friend did something silly. <laughs> <laughs> Like, she's just laughing. That's I, w- not... I would not be surprised if that was not, like, in the script. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that you just improv it, and she was just like, yeah, all right. <laughs> That's the exact sort of improv- improvisation that, like, David Lynch's method of making movies yes. leads to. Yeah. You know? Um, my other point, though, is, so I was watching this again because, uh, so the first time I watched this, um, I think I was the first person who actually watched it in, in my friend group, but like, cause I watched it like fairly early high school. Um, and my, my friend group became increasingly potheads. And then, uh, I finally started smoking mm-hmm. and basically never had to buy weed cause everyone was so excited to smoke me out because I had not <laughs> been smoking while they've been smoking for like one or two years, you know? Um, but one of the things that I introduced and that, especially once I joined the friend group, like really became a, a part of like the in jokes that we had were things from this movie in a way mm-hmm. that's like, this movie's dark and we were doing like, 
if anybody drank Heineken, we would shout at them, Heineken, fuck that shit, Paps Blue Ribbon. Right. When we were getting high and drinking and hanging out at some weird house party or uh, in the yeah. woods, because yeah. it was rural Michigan. Yeah. Um, but I was watching it this time where I have more distance than the last time I watched this from like my youth as a punk kid uh, getting drunk and high and going to punk shows and stuff where I'm like, I think part of what we are latching onto is that a big core interesting part of this movie is this like Kyle McLaughlin existing in both worlds and that weird yes. state that um, everything is intensified here. But it feels like a very dreamlike representation of what a lot of us were going through as people who like were living in a, a suburban, like slash slightly rural, mm-hmm. like urban environment where everything is supposed to be like nice and uh some people more than other like me and my friend Butzo were far better at his last name was Butson and we called him Butzo and he's still just Butzo to me. But um we were better at like getting good grades and still existing within like the school system. Mm -hmm. But then I was still going to punk shows and like moshing and like smoking cigarettes and drinking and getting Mm -hmm. high and, and hanging out with like weird adults as a teenager that I, you know, aren't like to the level of Frank, but have a little bit of the Frank vibe, the same double life that like Laura Palmer, one of these days is going to lead. Yes. Yeah. Um, and just like, also going through things that are like traumatic and that I should be getting help with, but because the, because high school is not supposed to be something from like their understanding where you're going through this rebellious thing, I'm like getting into, I'm doing worse shit than I probably would if I had like actual support to deal with any of this. Mm-hmm. Cause I'm just like a closeted queer kid with trauma right. who is dealing with it by moshing really hard until I like, can't walk properly because I mosh so hard and I have to just sit for like an hour mm-hmm. um, and smoke a cigarette and calm down. You're right. Um, and so a lot of that is in here where I then fully understand why I showed this to my friends and then we are just quoting because we knew fuck we didn't know like somebody is quite as intense and menacing and like evil as Frank. Mm-hmm. But we kind of knew Frank's. Right. We knew the like weird guy who you mostly put up with because he helps you like helps us get alcohol or like drugs or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes like he just shows up at a party and the entire mood of the party fucking changes because now it's got to be about him and his like weird shit. He's just like angry about something and now the party has to be about how he's angry. Yeah, <laughs> and that's like Frank, you know. Yeah. Um, and so I like not in any of to the degree of like terrible things that happen in this movie but like i i had this experience growing up well, this feels very relatable to me in a way that i think some people watch it and it's like oh it's about the dark sea and it's like this is also just about going like having all the expectations of being a good teen and like going to school and things and having these other things and not really having like a good outlet for it and so you you go into like you do shit that you shouldn't be doing, mm-hmm. but it's just because like there's n- there's absolutely no space for any of that in the like construction that's been set up, and so you have to like to some degree live this double life. Mm-hmm. They'll eventually come crashing in on you. In my case, it was the the police uh, caught us for for smoking weed. Um, I was in the car with my friend Butzo, and uh, the police knew his dad and was like, oh, he's going to like basically beat you up. So we're not going to do anything. And they assumed that since my dad was a pastor that he would like hit me too. Mm -hmm. Like it was very clearly implied that they assumed that, that like my dad would take care of me. My dad did not hit me, but yeah. 
Um, yeah, and then I just had to go home and explain that I was just, you know, the police came and I was smoking pot and, oh, you've been, you know, and everything crashed in. Right. But, and so there's just like a weird relatability to this. Yeah. Then I'm also like, I don't know if ev- if everyone that I talk to who has a different view of this movie has the same childhood experience of like, now in some ways this is kind of just growing up in like a weird rural nowhere USA and like that this shit is just happening and you kind of fall into it sometimes as a teen. Yeah. Not to this extent, but like, I mean like, but I think this is also talking about narratives around this stuff and like heroes and detectives Mm -hmm. and things, which is also part of why it becomes more intense. Yeah. Um, to touch on Frank briefly, like I think one of the things that makes him so effective, um, as a villain and I, I, I'm reminded now that, like, this is the thing that Roger Ebert hated about this movie. Like, when I read that, like, review of, of this movie that Roger Ebert did where he hates how funny it is, um, I don't think he thought it was funny. But, but he hates that there's jokes constantly in all this darkness. And I think, like, Frank also has this sort of other double life. You know, and we literally will see him get into costume and assume a different persona in this movie. But Frank has this double life where what we see, what we perceive outwardly is that he is a violent, um, horrible man, you know, who deserves the horrible fate that he gets at the end of this movie to get fucking shot. You know, he deserves to get shot. <laughs> yeah. Um, But sort of his own perception of it is like, it's just him and his buddies hanging out, making a little money, having some fun, you know? Yeah. You see what him and Jack Nance get up to, and it's like him and Jack Nance hanging out in the car, and Jack Nance is like, you want to go to Pussy Heaven, kid? This kid's never been to Pussy Heaven, Frank. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And then they they go hang out, and, you know, Jack Nance is, like, clapping in Kyle McLaughlin's face and going, I'm Paul. Because he just thinks that's funny. Yeah. (laughs) To, like, menace this kid. Yeah. You know? Um... And what's also like a a thing happening here is it's so easy to like envision the world where uh, comic Lachlan just becomes one of these guys. Right. Um, Like a thing that I thought was really interesting is um, Dorif. What's his first name again? Brad Dorif. Brad Dorif. Uh, In the, the uh, no Frank and Lumberton. There's a part where there's audio where he's talking about he's played a lot of like characters who kind of get up to like bad things or like have these, you know, aren't like truly moral people. But he's like, this feels like the most like genuinely evil character I've played. And it's just because he's just accepted what's happening. Mm -hmm. He's not going to challenge anything. He's just like he has fallen into the evil of like, oh, the way that this is, is this guy is kind of just has this like magnetic power around him even as he's not like he's not charming mm-hmm. in the way that like comic Lachlan kind of is but he still has this like presence where he enters a room and things have to be about him and uh Brad Dura's character has just like accepted to go along with that and mm-hmm. that his own understanding of that character is and that's evil mm-hmm. to be like around this kind of person and to just be like yeah we're just gonna have our fun guy's night or whatever right is like an actually like evil thing to do to like not in any way interrogate your relationship to any of what you're doing yeah um as someone who for the most part is not doing the evil things frank is doing Mm. but he's just fine being with frank he's fine being frank's friend 
And I think and that that made me click some things together in my head. Because like I think that Kyle MacLachlan, like the character that he's playing and the performance he gives of that character is just fucking great in this movie. I think yeah. um I think in the past I've seen him as like, oh, he's just sort of a blank slate protagonist. And I think that's very purposeful. Like, I think that he is he is a guy. It's like Surge from Chrono Cross. <laughs> well, he is a guy who is just going to sort of like roll with whatever situation he falls in, he finds himself into. He does instigate some things. He gets the idea to sneak into Dorothy Valens' apartment. He brings the the ear to the police. He um decides to go back to Dorothy's apartment to like try and get Frank, basically. Yeah. He he he's taking action. But there are also a lot of times where he finds himself in a situation and he's just going to follow that situation to the end. He's not going to try and, like, get away from Frank once Frank, like, is like, we're hanging out tonight, basically. He's not going to, um, he's not going to be, like, honest with, with Laura Dern's character about, like, I'm, I'm fucking Isabella Rossellini because he's like, well, now when I'm with her, I'm sort of playing the... I'm I'm playing the part of like high school heartthrob, you know, yeah. and that's just the sort of like that is like what is expected of me, and so that's the role I'm gonna play. And now Isabella Rossellini wants to fuck me. Well, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna gonna go along with that, you yeah. know. Um, yeah, and you could so easily see how he doesn't necessarily become a Frank, but he come he becomes a Brad Doris character. Yeah, he becomes Vincent a Raymond or whatever. Raymond. Yeah. Raymond. Yeah, there is another guy in the in the posse named Vincent. I think. Yeah. Becomes a Paul. He becomes just the guy who's hanging around Frank because it's easier to do that. Yeah. Than to like really challenge him. Uh huh. Um, and it's really just the fact that Frank becomes so threatening to him that he like has to turn a gun on him. Like that feels more like what instigates the ending. Mm -hmm. Is like this man is trying to kill me. I guess I have to kill him. But also, like his character he is sort of constructing the situation where he might be in a life or death situation. Yeah. Because he is at the hospital with Dorothy Valens. He, he's at the hospital with Isabella Rossellini's character. He can be fairly certain that, like, Frank is not going to come there. Like, that Frank's going to go do something else because he's not going to just, like, walk into this hospital and start shooting in broad daylight. That's not who Frank is. He puts himself in, like, I think maybe Frank is going to come back to her apartment. I will go there so that I will be in the life or death situation where it is only natural that I react to shoot. And I don't think, I don't think any of this is like conscious to him. I don't think he's thinking about, I'm going to go put myself in a life or death situation. I think he's thinking to himself, like, I got to go be the hero, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I just think he's like a way more interesting character than I maybe like gave him credit for. And I think like it is, I think he's like a way more interesting character, like as a script writes him. And I think he's like, but it would be so easy for this character to suck. And it is only because Kyle MacLachlan like is able to walk. Like, like we'll see in, in Twin Peaks, the return, like, li like this gets like becomes a literal dichotomy of like Dougie, just this like happy go lucky father um, who, who literally can do no wrong. <laughs> And, and the like absolute darkness that like Mr. C is, you yeah. know? Um, um, yeah. Should I, 
Can I bring in return thoughts here? Sure. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about like the end of the return maybe well, here. I don't know. <laughs> I'm gonna go pee real quick. Yeah, I know that we already did a pee break, but I'm gonna do a real quick one. Oh my god, we're at two and a half. <sighs> it's gonna be. I'm fucking... hungry. I am too. Lunch. <laughs> <laughs> I'll talk here about like um, while Nia's in the restroom, I'll talk about like the reading I did. Um, basically. I found myself one of the nights like thinking about Blue Velvet before we watched it and thinking like, ah, I want to like get to something about this movie that is more than just like <clears throat> it is um, um, like, oh, oh about the, America has a secret dark side, you know? Um, and so I went and, and shout outs to the Chicago Public Library. Um, if you live like anywhere where there is a public library near you, I would highly encourage you to like get a card and go see what resources are available to you. Um, like the Chicago public library gave me access to like JSTOR and EBSCO host, which like I have a slight like university academic background. So I have been trained a little bit in how to use those services to find like interesting articles. Um, so there's, you know, still gatekeeping involved in this, but, um, (laughs) uh, those are like resources that are available to me that I didn't think would be available to me because I'm no longer part of the university system. Um, and so I get in the Chicago public library website. I'm like, went and found a bunch of academic articles about blue velvet and sort of like the two dominant ways of reading this movie, I think are like psychoanalytics or postmodernism. And I think I don't want to like explain that shit, but I think we have, like our reading of this movie sort of naturally fell in line with like a lot of what postmodernists were saying. Yeah, postmodernism and, has a fair amount of like formalism as well, and I think we don't like <clears throat> define yeah, our I'm critical not, style, but we are a bit more formalist than I think some of our like friends. Well, and I I think like the thing that was helpful for me was I read a bunch of articles, <laughs> and it wasn't like ah now I have the language of postmodernism to explain Blue Velvet. It was like I read these articles and I was like oh, I saw the ways that my sort of intuition fell in line with this thinking and this thinking gave me like a way to articulate it a little better. So that was a little fun thing about going and reading a bunch of articles about this movie that I don't think you need to do. Like uh, my intuition got me most of the way there and then like reading some articles sort of like helped me focus that a little bit. Yeah, the the thing about academia... That um, this is the thing that if you go to grad school, they like talk about very early on. But I feel like undergrad does a really bad job of communicating. And I understand why mm-hmm. they don't want they don't want to encourage the person who comes to the 101 philosophy class and just wants to like be a philosopher and but not do any of the actual work of reading stuff. They want people to like read and learn different perspectives but so much is like emphasized early on in education that like these are smart people who wrote them down and they are like correct. Mm-hmm. And then you hit grad school if you make it that far and it becomes, okay, now your job is to like decide who you think is correct and and who's not correct and to like build on what people have said and to like formulate your own things where you are like in conversation with these people who we for a really long time we've told are like, you just need to like read them and understand them because these are the greats or whatever. Mm-hmm. And now suddenly you're like, you have to view them as peers. And my encouragement to people is don't be the annoying person. Who's just like, Oh, I have my idea 
and that's the correct one. There's, I'm like, I'm not going to learn anything from reading other mm-hmm. uh, theory or anything. I have the correct one. I just want to come and argue with people because I believe that I understand everything. Mm-hmm. Do take the time to try to under, like, if you're interested in doing this work, do you take the time to read other articles or whatever? Mm. But also go into it with the knowledge that, like, I'm allowed to disagree with this. Yeah, you're allowed to disagree. You're allowed to argue and. As you read more stuff, you will find the people who you agree with more. You'll find that, like, I like Bazin a lot, not because I agree with his conclusions, but mm-hmm. because that man wrote a really, like, extensively about trying to define realism. Yes. It's a thing he really believes exists in cinema and should be strived for in, like, all films. And the more that I read of his stuff, the more I come to the conclusion that, like, trying to portray realism in cinema is, like, a foolish endeavor because... Yes. Because... Even what he is defining as realism is constructing a, a specific genre. Yeah. And not he, actually portraying reality. I read, like, one little chapter from one book that Bazen wrote, and, like, it was specifically, he spends so much of that chapter trying to construct a dichotomy between, quote-unquote, like, realism and, quote-unquote, like, the image, basically. And, like, these direct, like, some directors believe in, like, images... And some directors believe in realism, and he sort of starts to like, like, deify or, or or elevate like realism. And I had even before talking to you, and then talking to you was like, oh, cool, we've got the same thing out of this. Of like, oh, he's built this dichotomy, and it really just shows me that like, it, it's a fake dichotomy. Yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's a fake and silly dichotomy that means nothing. But because it, because he spent so much time trying to build that, I learned something about my disagreement with him yeah. that sort of like helped me understand this movie a little bit. Yeah. And so sometimes it's fun to find the writers who you really disagree with, but who write in a way where you're like constantly reading it and in your disagreement finding your own yeah. things. So that's Bazen for me. He's the biggest one of those where I read it and uh, disagree with so much of what he says. Also, none of this to say, if you don't want to go read academic articles, don't yeah i i wanted to like i wanted to read what other people had to say about this movie and i didn't want to read like reviews that ran in newspapers or on youtube at the time because i've read that shit (laughs) i wanted to go read something i didn't have a familiarity with and i got something out of it yeah anyway here's the thing that i got out specifically to to relate to blue velvet is like this one article i read had this interesting reading of like blue velvet as like parody and um specific like specifically like for this writer what was happening is like it's not just that it is revealed that america has a dark side but it is also that like like david lynch isn't just presenting us america he is presenting us with America as it sees itself. America has constructed this vision of the fifth of the fifties as perfect and idyllic and beautiful and all these things. And, and Lynch shows us that that is fake, you know, and not just that, like, not just that, like America itself is like hiding this dark thing, but that America is showing you images of a thing that is fake and indoctrinating you into those images so that when you see those images, you think of how great America is. 
you know? Yeah. And that, like, by parodying those things, he's not just undermining America's America, quote unquote, but, like, the images that America is showing to you to get you to question, like, those things. And I thought that was really interesting of, like, you know, it's not just, it's not just... America, but the idea of America. Yeah, and the the stories that America tells about itself, which for a long time has included the good America triumphing over mm-hmm. the evil. Yeah. Um, in ways that are sometimes deeply, deeply like racist and in charge. Like you go back to Birth of a Nation, mm-hmm. titled about the birth of America, and mm-hmm. it is about like the triumph of whites over blacks. Right. Right. And that's way before the 50s. And but yeah. that's also still a part of the construction of the American idea is like a, a triumphing over others and, who are who are evil in some way. And this movie is about that is like Kyle McLaughlin. You you get the America story of he's the hero detective mm-hmm. who is coming in and we get a little bit of Hardy Boys. You get a little bit of like film noir. Yeah. Uh, seeing the seedy underbelly. Uh, maybe being slightly tempted by it, but finally triumphing over it. And you get this like really heavy handed metaphor that I think David Lynch is fully aware of how heavy, heavy handed it is yeah. and wants you to laugh at it yes. of, oh, the Robins will return and there's the bugs that we saw at the beginning and now the Robins eating it at the end. Yeah. And you as a person who's like thinking about more critically being like, but like the robins need bugs, like the robins need to eat bugs to live, uh-huh. and the bugs depend on an ecosystem where robins exist. Yeah, like if you know anything about bugs and robins, you know that what the thing that doesn't happen is that robins come and vanquish all the bugs, and there are no more bugs. Mm-hmm. It's just a like, it's an ecosystem, right? But what you've just been given is a story about how Pam McLaughlin is a robin who comes and eats the bugs, and now. Uh, America can be good again. And like, and like David Lynch, I don't think is like a, from hearing him talk about it, I don't think that David Lynch like is a spiritual, it's hard to, it's hard, hard to unpack. David Lynch believes in transcendental meditation as a practice that is like fulfilling to, to one's life that sort of like enables one to do various things. Transcendental meditation comes from Hinduism. And and I don't know that, like, I don't know if I ask David Lynch, do you believe in, like, are you, like, a, a believer in, like, Hinduism as a religion? I don't know that he would say yes. But I do know that he spends a lot of time reading, like, Vedic texts and, the, the like, the Bhagavad Gita. Gita and per- Forgive me for pronouncing things incorrectly. This is a language that I have like zero familiarity yeah. with. I can't even like sort of fake my way into knowing how to pronounce it like I would with like Italian or something. You know, I have no familiarity and that's on me. Anyway, that is a religion that sort of takes as its core a cycle of death and rebirth, you know? Yeah. And that nature is cyclical in this way. And so like, yeah, the robin is eating the bug the robin someday will die and be decomposed by the bug and the robin and the bug are symbols of like good and evil <laughs> like yeah. it, i don't know it's all there it's all in like, the image itself yeah you know? and there's like in the this being a story that america tells about itself like the story that america tells about itself depends on the evil that the good triumphs over yes 
in a way that also, in a, and I don't know if David Lynch is going this far, but like, why why is this a story that America tells about itself? Well, part of it is because America is deeply ingrained with the, this idea in capitalism of competition and people like, competition is built on people being better than others, people mm-hmm. succeeding over others. Yes. And having that kind of system, you need to build in like cultural stories about how when people who win are better. Mm-hmm. Uh, because if you, if you have stories where people who win are actually more evil, that would encourage more like, yeah, questioning of why we have this system where people who do better and, you know, succeed more, Mm -hmm. get more money and have more of a right to live. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think he's quite going to like the, this, this level of like economic reading, Mm -hmm. but that's part of what's going on here too. That's part and, of, like, this is about constructing an identity about America and the stories and being, being like, uh, satirical, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. And also sp- sort of spinning out from that, like, this movie is incredibly white. Like, most of the people in this movie are white. There are two characters we see who are black. Um, They are called Double Ed. These two men sort of function as one man in the movie. And yeah. I, okay. Speaking of, like, I don't know how quite how far David Lynch is going. I think this is a little bit racist. <laughs> yeah. I think David Lynch is pre- presenting to you funny black man. Funny black yeah. men. You know? And they're, like, just sort of comedy relief in this movie. But also, what is happening with the black men that we see in this movie? They work in a, like, service role. You know, they work the their cashiers at the um, hardware store that Kyle McLaughlin's dad owns. Kyle McLaughlin's dad is a business owner that this enables Kyle McLaughlin to go off and get a like university education somewhere. These black men have seemingly worked for Kyle McLaughlin's father for decades, you know, long enough that like he's known them since he was a kid, you know. And also in a, a weird way that's again slightly ableist, but like there's a there's a kind of joking scene where someone's trying to buy a shovel and one of the guys is reading the tag mm-hmm. and then the other guy knows that like punch how what that tag means in terms of money to then punch it in on the cash register. Right. And so these two men have to like function together as one. Yes. <laughs> and that like literally this beautiful like white home that we see where we see all these beautiful blonde white people having their nice lunch together at the end, that is dependent on these two black men that we kind of push to the side and barely see in the movie. Yeah. You know? Like, that beautiful white fantasy depends on black labor. Yeah. You know? And I don't know that that's like... what they, I, I cannot tell if David Lynch is thinking about that or if David Lynch is thinking... Wouldn't it be funny to have, like, some comedy relief black people in this movie? Can't tell. Not really interested in that question. Death of the author, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Also, death of the author, but also we're a project that is deeply engaged with David Lynch's tour. So, like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, we can't really say death of the author. I... I'm doing dialectics. The author is dead, and also the author is alive, and so it's worth interrogating both of those things. Yeah, this is the thing that that uh, Connor and I talk a lot about on Ghost Divers, which is the the like um, the weird balance with like uh, we're like 
neither of us super believe in like auteur theory as like the proper way to read things, mm-hmm. but also in understanding a text, like it is important to understand that the way that people are going to be approaching Kino's journey, the way that I first encountered Kino's journey was it's the next big thing from the serial experiments lane guy mm. that like, even if you don't fully believe that, uh, authorship exists in this in the like full auteur theory everything that we're seeing is from David Lynch's brain mm-hmm. because that cultural understanding still exists it is still a thing that is like informing works that because yeah. that exists the crew that is working on a David Lynch movie knows that they are working on a David Lynch movie mm. and that also means something to the crew even as we can push back against it and say, oh, but also a move, no movie is the product of one person except maybe some like really uh, experimental film stuff. Yeah. Uh, you get like uh, brackage, like scribbling, uh, like scratching to do animation on, on film. And I mean, and it's like, like, okay, yeah, that, that was all him. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, like this is the thing that we know is that cinema as a like, industry exists because of like mechanized labor and like we have we have like industrialization means that we have created like factories and the factory model gets applied to cinema as an industry and so all of this can sort of exist because David Lynch is almost like a foreman of various laborers actors yeah. producers crew members who who all work together to make this product that then David Lynch gets credit for. <laughs> yes. And then part of the the mythos of the author that is David Lynch is that uh, he is the man who is able to create art cinema like Blue Velvet within the Hollywood system. Yeah. And that's part of what makes him unique and special. Yeah. Um, um, that like few other people will be able to make a, a movie that, ha- you know, that you would put as its peers like these art films, mm-hmm. but fully within like a Hollywoodized system. Um, going then from, like, all the various people who are, like, sort of put to the side in this movie, the literal ending of the movie, like, the the ending of the movie is, like, super ironic and sarcastic because you get this, like, beautiful white home and this perfect American, like, you know, vision of, of, of goodness. And then you cut to Isabella Rossellini and that angelic, like, Ma- Angelo Badalamenti organ is playing... And then it cuts out and you see her like being troubled and you hear her singing. I still see can see blue velvet through my tears and her for that home to exist like um, traumatized women have to be shunted to the side. Like literally she cannot be part of that home. Laura Dern says so like I love you Jeffrey. I can't see you like that. I cannot see you with her. And so for that home to exist, traumatized women cannot be part of it. You know? She has to go be a single mom The The trauma of Laura Dern, like, you know, there's the scene where she's in her bedroom or whatever. Uh Uh-huh. Like, that has to be given more primacy over the, like deeper trauma that you've been seeing happening to Isabella Rossellini. Yes. And it, this movie works because Laura Dern can sell those scenes. Yes. She's fucking incredible in this movie. Yeah. Like, (laughs) so there's a, there's a funny video I was showing you where she's talking about, 
meeting David Lynch for the first time and she talks about um, some of her experiences making Blue Velvet. And there's a funny bit, and I think I know what scene this is maybe about. Um, she says, like, <clears throat> David Lynch calls cut and he's like, Laura, that was perfect. You're going to have them bolting for the fire exits. Yeah. And I think it's about these scenes of her crying because it is so intense. It is like the like just the like volume of emotion on display as like her jaw is like on the floor, like her mouth is as wide open as it gets. She's like crying as much as a human possibly can. She is in agony. And it's like so over the top that any other like less adept actress, it would ruin the scene how yeah. much she is doing. But somehow like Laura Dern can just make it work. Yeah. And I don't know how. She's yeah. a fucking magician. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's also like I, I'm thinking about this too, because I don't want to like also diminish that like, oh, there's a there's a super hierarchy of like the pain that people I I was living this double life and probably doing stuff that I probably should have felt like more upset about. Mm -hmm. But then the thing that I'm like super heartbroken about is that my like girlfriend that's in part of my, my not double life, mm -hmm. my, my good life, mm -hmm. uh, who as part of that is abusive to me, broke up with me. And that's what I'm like crying and uh -huh. all fucked up over. Yeah. So yeah. yes, like sometimes just the way that emotions work are different, but it is mm -hmm. also, I think important that Laura Dern's reaction here you get the big crying everything mm -hmm. you see lots of stuff happen to isabella rosalini but she's never allowed to like express sadness at what's happened to her in the same way yeah she has never afforded the like despite like going through a lot she has never afforded the space in this movie to to emote about it that laura dern's character is yeah. you know um, yeah, the the most that we can kind of get at the end is just the the turn in her face of, with the the song still like haunting her. Mm -hmm. uh, even though she has come to a better, I mean, her husband's yes. dead, but she her, has her child back. She has her child back, and she's not being raped every night by Frank. Yeah, so like materially, her life is better, but that doesn't affect the part where she is still traumatized by these yeah. things, and no one cares. Yeah. <laughs> Um, because she is part of the, the seedy underworld. And so we have to like, in order to return to the, uh -huh. uh, the idyllic thing, the most that we can get is just the, the, like the newspaper article of like, Oh, here's what happened. And you know, at the end it's like, uh, and the mother has been reunited with the child isn't or whatever. And you're like, Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Oh, that's you know? so nice. Well, look, they're playing in the park. That's so sweet. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, oh, did you hear what happened to them? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. The, the, definitely, like, the sequel to this movie is, like, Isabella Rossellini, like, trying to be part of, like, a knitting club and, like, all the other, like, moms in the... All the other moms at the PTA whisper about her. Yeah. You know? It's it's Red Desert, but not about a rich woman. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which, like, this is, like, the thing that, like... I have so many memories of like my mom and her friends sitting around and talking about other moms who were less fortunate than them and sort of like blaming those women for, and I'm not saying that like my mom is this awful person who would turn her head to the side. I'm saying that like we as a society sort of function on, oh, look at those less fortunate people than ourselves. Yes. You, you have to conceptualize stuff as like, in order to like 
assuage the guilt that you have yes. about your position compared to other people. You have to like take this like pity position towards them. Yes. Those, those less fortunate and like, oh, it's just such a shame. Like if she hadn't gotten into that, yeah. Then, but but it's also her fault that she got into yeah. that somehow. You know, yeah. even though like. In she, this movie. she should have known that Frank's no good. Like, yeah, it, yeah, even though in this movie, Frank kidnapped her husband and son. I don't really think there's anything that she could have done that like invited that to happen. But you know, <laughs> when you're when you're a late night singer at a nightclub like that, uh-huh. these sorts of things happen sometimes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, thankfully, I'm just the stay-at-home mom for a man who runs a uh, like a hardware, hardware store. store. I've never had to figure out how to make money myself as a woman. Yeah. Because um, I did what I was told in high school was my job, which was to get a man with a good-paying job. Could and I then pull, I'll be taken care of. Could I pull all this forward to like the ending of Twin Peaks? Because I mentioned I was going to yeah. do that earlier, and I forgot. Yeah. Yeah. We're past. We're we're wrapping up. We have we have emails. This is gonna be such a long episode. We need lunch. (laughs) I'm hungry. (laughs) Um, pull back the curtain. Um, like Emily is out of town this weekend, so we're like, oh, let's record in the morning. It'll be so relaxing to like have it off our plate and have the rest of the day. Didn't think about how. We're not, like, tired and want to go to bed, and so it's going to end the podcast. Like, we have, like, a kind of all time limit on it. Yeah, the only time limit is, I'm starting to get kind of hungry. Yeah. (laughs) Which is much easier to, like, ignore for a little while. Oh, my God, I thought we would be done by, like, one at the latest. Oh, God. (laughs) All right, so Twin Peaks. You know what? I'm not tying in Twin Peaks. Let's just, let's... There's a lot of stuff here that will come up again in Twin Peaks, and you know what? We'll cover it then. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I I'm glad that the we have some guys because I feel like as we move further away from totally reprise doing Twin Peaks, like right now I'm kind of just annoyed about stuff with episode eight, and I'm hoping that there'll be enough distance that by the time we get to episode eight, um. I will have like been able to release some of the annoyance before mm-hmm. we then cover it and keep like yeah. I get annoyed again by just discourse around it. Yeah. It's not even like any individual person that I'm talking about here. It's just the like We We were having a conversation about it the other day. The thing that's annoying me, I think, is that episode eight in particular is like such a flashpoint of discourse. In like mm-hmm. the, the, the Twitter sense of that word is that everybody is always discoursing about episode eight. And like, I really like episode eight. Episode eight is one of the best parts of David Lynch's filmography to me. There are also like, I like Blue Velvet more than episode eight. I like the last two episodes of The Return better than episode eight. I like the first season of Twin Peaks better than episode eight. I like Firewalk with me better than episode eight. <laughs> yeah. There are so many things. I like things. Mulholland Drive more than episode eight. There are so many things I'd rather talk about. And also, my understanding of episode eight depends on the rest of Twin Peaks. Like, not just the rest of David Lynch's filmography, but just other stuff that you have seen and will see if you are watching Twin Peaks that I don't want to talk about episode eight all the time. And we are just at a moment in like our social circle that everybody's talking about episode eight a lot and I'm getting grouchy about it. And I'm I'm venting that feeling on the podcast and now it will dissipate. 
Now it will um, move into the ether because what I'd rather talk about is the ending of Twin Peaks. <laughs> yeah. The one thing that I, I will say that I, I think is probably people have noticed emerging, but I just want to like say explicitly that I think, I, I believe that David Lynch is like a person who thinks, who watches a lot of movies, loves movies, thinks about movies. Mm-hmm. And I think all of his movies are about movies. Yes. I don't think, and this was another thing where someone was talking, I don't even know what the audio was from, but somebody was talking about, um, on the, the No Frank and Lumberton, was talking about, like, they're making Blue Velvet, but was describing it as, like, unreal, which I think is kind of at odds with the way, a lot of people think about this as, like, oh, it's about the dark reality, the under... Mm-hmm. And I think that the reading of Blue Velvet, that it is, that it is just as unreal and dreamlike as something like Mulholland Drive, as something mm-hmm. like Eraserhead, which is when this is being made, the, the main thing that she's pulling, where she's like, you go and you watch Eraserhead mm-hmm. and everything is so unreal. It's so dreamlike. It's so surreal. Also, it's talking about a truth that if you're a parent, you understand, like you immediately understand what this movie is about, which is that I have a newborn and I want to do other things other than just like look after this newborn. have to look after this newborn constantly in a way that is like disrupting my sleep uh-huh. and that I'm so sleep addled that I will have the weird dream. And then I will feel like the the weird dream is bleeding out into my reality. Yeah. And it's just like about this. It, it is so surreal and everything, but it's about this actual reality that exists for people. And it's trying to get at it through images that are giving you feelings and yeah. the sensations and are, are better capturing what it feels like to have a newborn. Yeah. Than having like a realistic portrayal. Yeah. On cinema of having a newborn. The, like David Lynch's method is the, like, is dreams, you know? Like, literally, he has dreams, and then he sort of, like, incorporates them into the movie. And the the result is movies that are about movies. That's why I thought it was so important to pull in, like, the part where this is a movie about the image that America projects to itself. Yeah. Because he's making a movie about the movies that America mythologizes itself with. Yeah. And it's doing that through, like, his dreaming method that he uses yeah. to make these movies. And the the reason why a lot of his stuff ends up either psychoanalytic readings or postmodern readings is because you look at that as, as either two things you do, as I was suggesting earlier with 80s horror movies, you say, ah, this is the collective dream mm-hmm. of society and I'm going to analyze it with the same way that psychoanalytics mm-hmm. would analyze an individual's dream but now I'm going to be analyzing society and psychoanalyzing mm-hmm. society through the dream that is presented to me in the form of a movie um, and then that becomes a lot about trying to like read into these images and tying it to these like Freudian mm-hmm. concepts and things like that or you do the postmodern one and you go ah this is about how movies are dreams about how movie like you're yeah. kind of taking that same perspective of like a movie is a, a thing that's being created yeah. by like a group of people that is reflecting things but instead of ta- tying it to like psychoanalytic concepts you're tying it to like how do we think about and construct stories and uh-huh. what is a movie and what does yeah. it mean to make a movie and and what is that and because also, what are the forms that go into making a movie and how do those forms convey feelings and emotions to us and yeah and also just because we're Marxists we're thinking about the labor that goes into that you know yeah <laughs> that's, that's the a, thing we actually are <laughs> is fucking I'm, commies <laughs> yeah I'm I'm a, I'm a formalist uh, a Marxist and uh, 
Yeah, I think those are like probably the two big things in yeah. terms of my criticism. But <laughs> yeah. I feel like the foremost part when it comes to cinema is what differentiates me from a lot of people in my orbit. Because I feel like all of those are more just straight Marxist readings. Yeah. We just um, hang out with commies because we're commies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, we have some emails. Sorry, I'm just... M texted me, Autumn, this is meaningless without context, but there are no Star Trek spoilers and blockbusters, so don't worry about it. Thanks, M. I don't know what that means, but thank you. <laughs> you were right about one thing. It was meaningless without context. <laughs> um, You... So, oh yeah, let me pull this up. This podcast can only really exist because us, the Robins, are the good people, right? <clears throat> but our goodness, our podcasting ways are sort of predicated on evil. And that evil is Zhuo, <laughs> who has sent a stairwell's email to the pondering Puton email. <laughs> and Zhuo, I need you to know, because on, on pondering Puton... I mean, it's just the general Ghost Divers email. Okay. But if I get, because I don't have a separate account from Pondering Puton. Right. But if you if you send in, and it's specifically about an anime we're watching, it's going to end up on the question bucket. Any other emails that get sent to there with just general questions is probably going to end up on Puton. Right. Uh, so I I thought about antagonizing you back, <laughs> and doing this on Puton. <laughs> um. But we will do it here. We will we will uh, do some justice. But it, especially because you titled this, and I'm reading it. You don't do this. Uh, Pris just point, pointed this out that you don't give show the satisfaction of reading their like. Well, because he addresses us as like, "Hi, Kyle and Laura." Yeah, <laughs> and I did. I frankly don't indulge him <laughs> as much um, as possible. <laughs> because he does this, he said. Uh, Hi, Waluigi and Luigi. And I'm going to be honest, Ghost Divers vibes are a little bit more I'm Waluigi, Connor's <laughs> Luigi. Then, like, I don't know which one of us is which on Maybe? stairwells, but I understand that. Maybe this email is meant for, for Ghost Divers. It is titled Stairwells, though. Impossible to know. That's but, dialectics. Yeah. Um, anyway, he says... Uh, make your own voice cast for a Mario movie directed by Wong Kar Wai. No, Neve, you cannot make it be a silent Tom and Jerry-esque movie. Because this was me being like, I don't care that much about Mario. Mm -hmm. um, to me, Mario is like Mickey Mouse in that like, it's an iconic image, but it means nothing. Mm -hmm. I have no attack. Like, it's not a character. Mickey Mouse so, and Mario are not characters to me. The, they are they are mascots, and the only way that I can conceive of like I would enjoy sitting down for a feature length thing of this is just Tom and Jerry style antics because that's not a, really about the characters so much as it is about the like comic work. So like this is somewhat of like a solved problem. What's the what's the way to make Mario narratively fun and funny? And this is like. The movie is stupid and makes Chris Pratt play Mario. But, like, the video games figured this out in the 90s in, in Mario RPG and all the other subsequent Mario RPGs where Mario is silent and speaks only through, like, mime of, like, jump or swing hammer. And everybody else around him talks. That's really fucking funny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. Well, so... We're we're slightly cheating here, I think, but 
Uh, he did say that we do a voice cast for a Mario movie directed by Wong Kar Wai, and we can't have it be a silent Tom and Jerry esque movie, but I think we can still not cast Mario. I think we could still not cast Mario. Yeah, Mario is just purely like if this is live action, then it's not through animation, but maybe we're just getting a good like we're we're hopefully finding like today's Buster Keaton style thing. So what if it's like Okay, so it's Wong Kar Wai, so I'm trying to put myself in the headspace of like mo- actors from like Hong Kong cinema. And I'm not gonna be like super period specific, but I'm gonna like like Are we doing it because I don't think Wong Kar Wai's done an animation. Are we doing live action? I, I think guess this so. is important. I guess so. So you know who I'm gonna have be Mario, who, who? doesn't speak at all, but does do a lot of physical comedy and mm. people have to react to him just like I have an idea and I'm curious you might have the same idea Jackie Chan okay see here's I'm getting Jackie Chan here's what I was gonna do Jet Li is Mario that would also be really good Donnie Yen is Luigi Jackie Chan is Bowser oh no this is better because <laughs> I do want Jackie Chan to talk whereas Jet Li I'm fine not talking yeah Jet Li can do it's almost really funny. It's going to, do. to become funnier because he's going to be so stoic as yes. Jet Li and his silence that yes. it, will, it will amplify the humor of everyone else having to react to him never talking. Yes. So it's Jet Li as Mario, Jackie Chan as Bowser, Donnie Yen as Luigi. Maggie Wing as Princess Peach because why not get her in yeah. here? She's fucking great. Yeah, she's fucking incredible. <laughs> the last one we need is we need some we need somebody to be like a toad or or the toads or something. I'm trying to think of, like, who's that somebody who can, like, bring, like, a little comedy relief, you know? Not, yeah. like, but not overpower the movie in the way that, like, Jackie Chan as Bowser will overpower the movie purposefully. We need somebody to bring in just, like, that do little... You, do you think Tony Long would be good? Yeah! <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> he can, like... Just weirdly charming... Yeah, Even he as can, he's, like, like, kind of a background character in this movie. Yeah, he can, like, smile at the camera just so to, like, bring that s- the scene, the something it needs. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so there's our Wong Kar Wai Mario movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. So, next email. Uh, for folks who maybe don't remember from last week, Chris has been um, listening through all of Stairwell's. Um, and is just like sort of sending us emails as she gets to them. So I don't remember what the context of this is, because I assume this happened like six months ago or something. <laughs> but, but Briz asks us, hey, Nia, do you ever get that major Kusanagi body pillow as a birthday gift? No. You should. We should make this happen. The yeah. face you're making... <laughs> You're like, I made a joke six months ago, and now... I don't even understand the context for it anymore. (laughs) But but now that we've been reminded of it, someone might buy me that body pillow as a joke. (laughs) The thing Um, is, Emily is is away for the weekend, which means that I'm just going to have, like, a body pillow for sleeping. mm -hmm. Um, It's the one that when she was pregnant, it's like a serpent, but... Mm -hmm. It's, like, long. But I do need to just, like, cling on to things when I sleep. Uh, Aiden sent us two emails. Um, one is just sort of a general email, so probably just sent it on like 
whatever day they thought fit. And then another that came in today after we asked for Blue Velvet emails. I just find this charming. Thank you, Aiden. Yeah. You're my favorite. Um, Aiden asks, I recently watched Runaway Train and Emperor of the North Pole, and they both rock. Y'all got any recommendations for movies set on trains? Um, it's like a little mid, but I did really like Horror Express. It's a movie. I talked about it on some episode. Go to exportaudio slash stairwell quality to like find what episode I talked about it on. Yeah. But Horror Express, um, it's a like seventies movie that's got Christopher Lee and um uh uh what's his name? The the he's in Star Wars. Peter Cushing. Peter that was not the one that I would have pulled out. <laughs> Alec Guinness? It's it's Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing um hanging out on a train. Uh there's like an evil caveman. It's pretty, yeah. it's pretty silly. It's not my favorite, but it's it's good. Um, I'm obviously a big fan of Snowpiercer. Classic. Yeah. Um, I'm like, I just Googled like train movies because I just, this is not something that like immediately comes to mind. This Sydney Lumet has a very good adaptation to Murder on the Orient Express that I would recommend. Yeah. Um, oh, oh, another very, very obvious one. Taking of Pelham 123, the original. I haven't seen the remake. Um, the original is a fucking classic, though. So, I don't. I was trying to remember how much of it is actually on the train. 310 to Yuma is a good movie, but I feel like most of it's not actually on the train. It's waiting for a train. I've only seen the original 310 to Yuma. I have not seen the 2000s 310 to Yuma. Um, the original Dark one. Dark Limited's okay. It's, there's, there's better Wes Anderson movies. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, I guess if you want a train movie... Yeah. If you yeah. like Wes Anderson movies and you like trade movies, trade Arjeeling Limited. I haven't seen it. But. Fireworks is... There's a, there's a musical on a train, but fuck that movie. <laughs> <laughs> People can go listen to me uh, rant against the anime fireworks based on the the uh, fireworks should we see them from the bottom or the side or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, that's what that is. Yeah. I was like, you've definitely talked about this on the show, but I don't remember what it is. Did you talk about um, it on Ghost Divers? <laughs> but no. No. Um, yeah, I think that's... Uh, there's a I, couple for, quick hits for you. Yeah. Those are some good picks. <clears throat> um, Aiden's next email. When you watched Blue Velvet, did someone in a different room call for you and you accidentally pause it at the moment when Kyle McLaughlin's dick is visible? Because that happened to me. No, that didn't happen to us. No. But then you were like, wait, come so I didn't even realize that you could see his dick in this movie. I didn't You either. see his ass. Yeah, you see a lot of Kyle McLaughlin's pasty white ass. Yeah. <laughs> uh but apparently his his dick briefly makes it in. I didn't see it in the movie, but we did we did go to yeah. nakedguysmovies.com. <laughs> a website we discovered while trying to figure this out. We were like, wait, you can see his dick in this movie? And I saw the dick. Yeah. That's sure. a that's a that's a strange website in the like Specifically, the watermark they do. Yeah, it's like it's like a strange website that's also not strange, um, because it's like strange because it, like it watermarks all these images with nakedguysinmovies.com. like just like diagonally across the entire image. But it's also not strange because I know that ten thousand websites exist for this about women, and so like one that exists about men. Is really only fair play. <laughs> yeah. But it does make you think about the whole system of like, we made websites where we just catalog 
genitalia in movies and how it's weird to do that to women and how it's weird to do that to men. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> they, God, the, they, they, the, the, the like tags on it. Yeah. There's like, so there's like tags for like David Lynch, uh, uh, eighties cut <laughs> <laughs> Kyle McLaughlin <laughs> circumcised. <laughs> it's just weird. <laughs> But oh also, god! Like... I just I was scrolling uh, Twitter briefly uh, and remembered the the cup of coffee video. It's so fucking good. But also, like nakedchicksinmovies.com absolutely has like hashtag D cup hashtag yeah uh, shaved vagina yeah <laughs> or whatever you know wiki feet wiki feet. Anyway, I realized we forgot to do the stairs. We forgot to do the stairs. S easy yeah. S. There's the uh, it's like outside stairs that's Leading. kind of like a fire escapey thing. Yeah, because the elevator in um, Isabella Rossellini's apartment isn't working. And so you got lots of shots going up and down the stairs that mean different things at different times. You've got like early on in the movie, uh, there's a slow-mo shot of um, <clears throat> Kyle MacLachlan like opens a door and like there's a light in the doorway, but the rest of the shot is dark, and so you just say see the faint outline of a stairwell, and he descends down that stairwell, and that's sort of symbolic of, like, he's descending into darkness for the rest of the movie. Uh, and then immediately after that, and it's probably what's going to be the cover, even though the other stairs at her apartment are far more significant, but it is important for just how we read these movies, which is, uh, there's an extended part where you just, uh, like, his, his mom or whatever is watching like on TV and it's just like one of those old like tube TV wood panel yeah style things uh, and she's just watching immediately after he's gone down the stairs you get her watching people creeping around on the stairs being sneaky and it's just like the feet on the stairs yeah it's good. it's about movies it's about movies anyway that's a, that about does it for us some good fucking stairs. Next time, we will be watching Otto Preminger's Laura, and then after that, we will get into Twin Peaks. Yeah. First, we'll do the first season, and then we'll take a break to do um, some movies, um, and then we'll get into the second season. Yeah, I think the only one between season one and season two is Wild at Heart, but we might squeeze in a like Christmas Yule episode, because I think oh, Wild yeah. at Heart will be right before, and then that will be like... Yeah. Yeah. There's so. also there's also a secret plan that I need to confirm with a guest. That's true. There's there's a secret plan that I need to re- confirm with a guest, and there's also like at some point during season one, Molly will be here, and I don't know if she wants to talk about Twin Peaks or if like we'll do collateral. I don't know. <laughs> My guess the what it could very easily be is we watch a movie together, uh-huh. and then we also watch Twin Peaks, and we just yeah, who knows? Do the thing, yeah. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. That's gonna be very just play it by play it by ear. What are the vibes? I also uh, might just be out of work at that time. There, yeah. I I did not lose my job, but the store that I work at is closing, and there's gonna be like union negotiations to get me into like um, a new store, and those hopefully those will be resolved before the store closes at the end of this month. But maybe they won't. I don't know. Okokoro is real. Okokoro <laughs> is real. 
Wait, we forgot to do plugs. Uh... Follow me at Foxmomnia. Just find the tweet where I where I posted the David Lynch drinking a bad cup of coffee. Follow me at autumnal underscore coffee on Twitter, at autumnal on co-host. ExportOdd.io is the Patreon. Send it to your friends. Give us lots of money. Yeah, especially with the thing that... Well, I hit stop and then we hit record again, but the thing that Autumn was talking about yeah. was money. I might pass around my PayPal if it looks like I will be out of work. If I'm not going to be out of work, then I'm not going to pass it around. But but still, go to the Patreon and If you go us. to twitter.com slash autumnal underscore coffee, my my coffee or my PayPal is in that bio. So if you just, if the spirit moves you and you just want to give me money, be my guest. Yeah. <laughs> Won't say no. The money will go straight into my account and you're not getting it back. Yeah. They're it would ta- be nice. They're taking the money and they're not giving it back. <laughs> I think of that as an old idle thumbs joke, but it's actually just a kangaroo jack joke. But I only think about Kangaroo Jack because I think about Idle Thumbs. Yeah. Um, no, I don't think that's on the horizon yet. I was going to mention something else, but I'm not going to. Oh, yeah, the other thing. No, I'm not mentioning The other thing, I'm not mentioning that. I'm not mentioning my other thing. I got another thing. I'm not mentioning it. Yeah, we got things. Let's go eat lunch. Anyway, it's fun. I'm going to do the thing where I'm going to play uh, as I always do. And when we say Okokoro is real, I'm going to time it to the, the two hits uh-huh. of the music so people will just think it's going into it. And then I'm going to let it play for a little bit. And then I'm going to suddenly record cut it scratch. where we're back. And just not record scratch, but I'm just going to cut it suddenly and we'll be talking again. And then it's going to happen again. So right now people hear it like coming up. And then we're going to say <laughs> Okokoro is real. Okokoro is real. Thank you.
white on white translucent black capes back on the rack Bella Lugos is dead the bats have left the bell tower the victims have been bled that velvet lines the black box Bella Lugos is dead is dead
There's some mouth sounds on here. I don't know. I think the whole... I like mouth sounds, but like... I find Neil... You're Neil's, doing a Neil Ceciriega bit. Yeah, I, I find his whole project a little, like, samey. Um, and I wish... Uh, the, 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 the mouth trilogy of albums, I think, is not as, like... I'm going to I'm going to say something that's going to maybe sound like gross. I don't think it's as like creatively fertile as like um the Lemon Demon stuff is. I think that like the Lemon Demon stuff is like just better across the board than like the the mashups. That's a fine cup of chai. <laughs> How is it? It's good. This is my. I have. I have two ways. Sometimes I'll just make up a little chai for myself, but mm-hmm. sometimes when the like chai season really hits, um, I just do. I have to. It takes way longer because you don't have milk, so you don't have the fats to like pull a lot of the flavors right away. Um, but I'll make up like a big batch of with just water, the spices, the black tea, um, and then I put the sugar in at that point. So you just have that pre-portioned already Mm -hmm. and then i put that in like a big jug in the the fridge and then i'll put that with a little bit of milk in it and put it in the the microwave it ends up being lower milk than if i make it like on the stove but Mm -hmm. um i'm much more of a um green tea person in general i don't usually go for black tea i when i do go for black tea i usually like chai but it's kind of like hit or miss for me mostly because i I usually just encounter chai in, like, coffee shops where it can be kind of hit or miss. Like, the coffee shop that I work at, it's pretty much a miss for me. Um, but, like, there are other, like, coffee shops where I like it, and there are other coffee shops where I really hate it, you know? Yeah. But I usually drink green tea. Um, but, like, when I do drink black tea, like, this is more or less what I want. Yeah. Um... I really like... I do. I do fuck ton of spices. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I also, here's my advice to people making some chai. Um, just get an orange. Mm-hmm. While you're going to make it, you can eat some orange, but just take it like pithanol. It's fine. Just like whatever you tore off of the orange, just put some of that in mm-hmm. to then get a little bit of that orange flavor in the tea. I'm gonna put people on to to something that you put me on to. And there are probably people in our audience who will be familiar with this, but I was not familiar with it until probably this time last year, a little bit. Um, uh, so I always think of myself as just a person who drinks green tea. And then you kind of like brought me into a world of like, there are many different things that green tea can be. There's sencha and genmaicha and, and... And this is just like the world of Japanese green tea. Yes, this is the world of like Japanese green tea. In America, we're not a like tea drinking culture. And so we just drink green tea, sometimes green tea with mint or green tea with peach. But like, yeah. it's just green tea. And there are like similar styles in, in China that have different... Mostly, because some of it is I just go to a Japanese supermarket, and so that's like the main terminology I know for... Yeah. Um, with the one thing of, of oolong, which is kind of like slightly yeah. different. Um, but, I do like oolong. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you you got me to start drinking... I think it's... Is it Genmaicha that I like? What's the roasted one? Yeah. 
And you like Sencha. I like Sencha. Genmaicha is the more roasted. Yeah, I really like Genmaicha, which is like the more roasted uh, one. So basically, yeah, they have the tea leaves and they roast it. And so it sort of takes on not like a coffee flavor like it's bitter. But if you like dark coffee, it's got that like roastiness that dark coffee has. There's like, okay, I watch a lot of like cooking YouTube and some of that intersects. One of the quick things to say with Genmaicha, I wanted to double check and make sure I was remembering this correctly, is that's the one that, so during the war, they had to like ration tea more. And so the style developed where when they were roasting the tea, they would also do roasted um, brown rice. Right, and then people just ended up liking it, and so Genmaicha specifically has the the brown rice in it. But that's what I really like is like the brown yeah. rice roastiness. Uh, so I hang out on a cooking YouTube a lot, and that intersects often with coffee YouTube, which I spend a little less time on, mostly because there's like one really big famous coffee YouTuber, and like kind of nobody else has the disposable income to like play in that space in the way that he does. <laughs> yeah. Um. And so, <clears throat> James Hoffman, this coffee YouTuber, and also lots of, like, coffee shops now. Like, places where you go, places where you go and you're like, I'm not getting a latte, I'm getting a cup of coffee. Or an espresso, yeah. you know? Um, and maybe maybe they'll have lattes, but, like, the thing on display is the coffee itself. Mm-hmm. There has been... A sort of turn in the last few years, I'll say like the last 10 years from my sort of unresearched perspective of like, for a long time, people in America, and this is like, has like a very like masculinely tied component to it. Like, I like dark coffee because it's bitter and strong and that makes me tough. And there's been this like push in this coffee culture toward Lighter roasts of coffee, because what lighter roasts of coffee do is that you're tasting, like, the coffee bean itself more, whereas darker roasts of coffee, you're tasting, like, the roastiness more. Yeah, the, like, process that it was roasted by. Yes. It's going to determine more of the flavor than the... Yes. And so a lot of, like, coffee culture people, like James Hoffman, have been like, oh, dark roasts are bad because you're tasting that roasting process and not the bean itself. And, and so... Like, have constructed this sort of reverse dichotomy where, ah, you uncultured swine, you. You like dark coffee because, like, you you don't have the refined palate for the fruitiness of coffee that I have. And I'm here to push back against that because I drink a lot of lightly roasted, like, fruity coffees. I like dark coffee. I like the taste of roasting things. Yeah. Get off my ass. <laughs> I I think the the bigger like the problem was that people create like hierarchies in this. Yes. And I think the more important thing is just to like if you like coffee, learn a little bit about like what is it that's being brought to the process by roasting versus the bean itself? Yes. And where where do I enjoy it the most? What and a- so for me, I like medium roasts a lot. Uh-huh. Um, I I found that I like a lot of like South American beans because mm-hmm. a lot of them have a, a sort of chocolatey quality to them that especially when you do a medium roast, yeah. you get a little bit of that roasting flavor, but not to the point where like when you do a dark roast, the roasting process is mostly what you're tasting. And that can still be really good. You can enjoy that flavor. You can really enjoy a roaster and how they roast something. Mm-hmm. But I like where you get a little bit of the mix of... Like, I'm getting some of the personality from here's the the roaster and what that's adding 
to yeah. the flavor. Um, and different people have different methods that can give you a different roasting flavor. But <clears throat> but also, you... if you literally are just like, I like it when it's really s- strong and dark, and I don't care about tasting all the that's like valid too. Yeah. But I just that's enjoy a... the like, oh, I like it when it's a little bit chocolatey and there's like... Yeah. I prefer that over the ones that are really fruity. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a, that's the thing is just like that there is like a very like older masculinity based hierarchy um about like <clears throat> dark coffee good cuz make strong and then there is a newer i think class based hierarchy of light roast coffee good also it's good because I have the disposable income to spend on trying all these different coffees and coming yeah. to the conclusion that I like these things. The, all that said, if you are a coffee drinker, I would encourage you one of these days, go to like a local coffee place. Maybe it's like this is the only location I really like in Chicago. There's Dollop, which is like got like 40 locations in the Chicago, Chicago area. And I like a lot of the coffee they make. I would encourage you go there Spend a little extra on coffee one time um, just so you can, like, try, like, four different things that that coffee place has. And you can be like, oh, I do like this fruitiness or, oh, I do like this roastiness or whatever it is. And now next time you go to the grocery store, you can sort of, like, be on the lookout. When you're buying your cheap coffee, if you buy expensive coffee one time, next time you go buy cheap coffee, now you have more of an eye for it. This is what I like. This is what I don't like. Yeah. And I'm I'm a, like... Because I was a barista for a while and was able to do this cheaper, I then developed, like, strong preferences Mm -hmm. to such a degree that at one point I saved up money to get, like, the best little just sits on your desktop espresso machine I could find. Um, And so because I really like espresso. Mm -hmm. um, But, like, the, uh, the other... There's two main ones. Like, there's different styles of making coffee and try out a few, but I would say the two big ones is do a paper filter versus not a paper filter. Yeah. Because the difference, what a paper filter does is remove oils. Um, yeah, that's another thing that's um, really interesting. I'm just now coming to the laughing realization that on this David Lynch podcast that we're doing, we're having a thing about how to how to find your damn fine coffee. <laughs> <laughs> One of the other hierarchies... And I've observed this not just in, like, like James Hoffman and, like, fancy coffee shops. I've observed this in my own um, global coffee chain. Like, the sort of coffee culture that exists at international, uh, well-known purveyor of coffees. Um, uh, a sense of, like... Because a lot of people who work here, like work here because it's a job and not because they have a sort of passion about coffee, which I think is extremely valid. I, I happen to be a person who has a passion for coffee and works here, but I don't really think of those two things as intersecting. But anyway, I've noticed a hierarchy at, at all, all different facets of like coffee culture that pour over is good because you get like a quote unquote cleaner, quote unquote, purer taste because it removes that oil um, and I've gone back and forth. I have like, this is a thing where like, I'll have a month where I make pour over and I'll have a m- month where I make French press. Those are my two different ways of making coffee. I'm just here to affirm to you that if you like that French pressed, like oily coffee, that's fine. 
I, I do too. I, love it. <laughs> I, 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 with the exception of sometimes I just want like a diner ass coffee when I'm at a diner. Yeah. And that's going to be, that's probably going to be a, a, a paper filter. Not per- a percolator. Yeah. The, the, the bun machine. Yes. Yeah. Um, the, the machine that like most home, at least in the U.S., coffee machines are mm-hmm. doing. Yeah. Uh, where it just like is pouring hot water into, but the machine's the doing it. Yeah, into the basket. Um, but that's like going to be a paper filter. Yeah. But for the most part, I just like espresso and French press are the two big, like really oily methods. And Yeah. I would just like, if you, if you like that coffee, like if you like a brewing method that is not pour over, Please do not think to yourself, pour over is inherently better. It's yeah. not. It's just different. And, like, it also ties into various, like, class and aesthetic-based hierarchies. I think a lot of people think, pour over looks prettier, therefore is better. That's not true. And there's a lot of people who think, pour over takes more time, and therefore is better. And that's not true. It just makes a different cup of coffee. I don't know. Yeah. Don't just find the one that you like. Yeah. Um, if you enjoy coffee a lot, spend a little bit of time just yeah. trying to figure out even a base thing. Yeah. That's it. Because I used to hate coffee, and then I, I worked at uh international, well-recognized purveyor of coffee. Uh-huh. Um, and as part of that job, you do have to kind of know coffee. Uh, and so I was trying different stuff, and then not their base espresso, but, like, part of it is that I'm just the kind of person that, like, even if I'm just working in the big chain, internationally recognized purveyor of coffee that lots of coffee snobs turn their nose up at, I'm still going to be the kind of person who's like, well, I still want to make sure that I'm making a good cup of coffee for people because right. I care about this. And so I'm going to get, like, weirdly into drinking the espresso and finding the correct grind on the machine, which I guess you can't even do anymore. You can't even but do But I was anymore. the, like, every time I came into my shift, I was, like, pouring shots until the grind was right because nobody else cared other than me and one other guy who worked the same shift as me. Well, so the machine, so. what it does now is it, and I don't know what mechanism it does this by, but it's sort of, I think it <clears throat> is sensing, like, I think it has, like, some sort of sensor for like, well, it took this long to pull the shot and it might even have a refractometer in the machine that's telling us like, that's telling it, oh, I got this strength of coffee on that last shot. Let me go a little finer or a little uh, uh, coarser. Um, But part of, so it's kind of, it's a huge help. It makes my job a lot easier that the machine calibrates itself now. It's also good because... Most employees at that company, back when I was working there, didn't care about the grind in the or, way that I did. One, people didn't care. Or two, I used to work with a guy who would be like, on the old machines, oh, it's telling me that I need to make it like finer. And what I do, what I was taught to do, and what I believe was true of those machines is that you should make it one, maybe two clicks finer. And then test that a couple times, maybe a click or two finer. This guy would just grab it and just like take it to the finest possible setting. And it's like, well, that's not what it was saying. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it wasn't telling you like you're just throwing it out of calibration in a different way now, jackass. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. But yeah, so and because of that, I was then. 
having to like because I just wanted to make good coffee for people who liked coffee, I had to figure out how to make good coffee. And then I was like, oh, wait, good coffee's good. good. Also, I've learned that, like, why do I like espresso? And then I did French press and I was like, damn, this is good. Yeah. Oh, I figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, all this to say that they sell lots of very good, very cheap coffees at your grocery store. You just have to, like, spend a little time figuring that out and... Probably, honestly, if you figure out a brewing method for coffee that you like, that's that going to do a lot of that. That's going to do way more for you than like picking the exactly perfect beans because, you know, the beans change from one harvest to the next, you know? Yeah. Um, and Emily and I just like coffee and stuff where we know our methods that we like and then we just try different beans all the time. Yeah. But, yeah, totally. Because that's just kind of fun of being like, oh, it's a little bit different right now. Yeah. If I, the job I work, I get a free pound of coffee from well-known company every week. Yeah. And so I drink, frankly, I don't like the coffee we sell, but I drink it because it is free. <laughs> if I worked yeah. a different job where I had to spend money on the coffee I bought, I'd probably do the same thing that you do of like trying a bunch of different things week to week. You yeah. Know? At, at said chain that you work at and that I previously worked at, um, this is how I developed uh, a technique to, it's not like true i don't have the like actual clay pot that adds flavor to it but i developed my own version of uh cafe de olla mm -hmm. uh that used like it pushed a little bit more towards chai because i like chai but i would do it because the guatemala that they had was fairly chocolatey but was not that good and so sometimes i would do that to mix it up because i mostly just got their guatemala beans from if, said company if you gave me a button right now and you said if you push this button one random person somewhere on the earth will die, but you'll have a cup of Café de Oya in front of you. I'd probably push it. I wouldn't push it, like, every day, but I'd push it. Yeah. <laughs> I'd, like, roll the dice. I'm like, odds are this is someone I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But actually doing that is how I started adding uh, orange to my chai. Because I was doing it with oh, the Café de Oya. Yeah. 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 Um, and I was like, this is good. My chai and my Café de Oya, like, drifted towards each other. My um, my stepmom, um, so her family is German Jewish, um, that um fled Germany to Mexico, and so she like <clears throat> grew up like she would spend the summers in Mexico basically with her grandparents, and so like there's a lot of like weirdly like. Like, Southern Mexican cooking that, like, I am familiar with that, like, a lot of people, like, a, a lot of, like, white people in the U.S. just, like, don't know shit about because they know, like, tacos. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And I'm not saying, like, oh, I'm so much better and more knowledgeable about Mexican cooking. There's just a lot of shit rattling around in here of, like, I have a specific way that I like to drink Cafe de Oya. <laughs> yeah. You know? Whereas many people are probably listening to me and, like, what the fuck is that? Right. <laughs> um... Yeah. Coffee's good. Yeah, coffee's good. I assume all of that's going to be after Bella would go yeah. see. <laughs> anyway. 